Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And this week we're doing a special crossover episode with the Movie Palace. So hi Carl, how are you? Hi guys, really nice to be here. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you both today. Pleasure to talk to you as well actually. I've been very lucky that I've, I've sort of I've sort of popped over on the Movie Palace before. I've been sort of lucky enough to sort of guest on, on the podcast there. But it's a fascinating podcast because it covers basically, um, like it takes a look at classic Hollywood in terms of like old films. Well, thank you. Yeah, I know it's uh, great to talk to you again today. And yeah, we had a lot of fun, didn't we, talking about Gilda not so long ago. But yeah, the podcast basically every week we have a look at usually a, a specific film from, you know, the classic Hollywood period, roughly defined as... I don't know, the late 20s to the late 60s, I guess. I'm not too kind of stringent on my definition of it because there's you know, lots of stuff I'd like to cover. But uh, yeah, that's that's the kind of mission over there, I suppose. But it's basically, it's the pre-Golden Age of, of sorry, pre, pre-New Hollywood era. Sort of. It is like, it's that, that sort of stretch of classic Hollywood that we sort of think of when we think of like black and white films. We think of like, this is a great example. We're doing Double Indemnity today, which I think is ranked the 88th uh, film of all time, best film of all time on the IMDb 250. But it's that sort of like Billy Wilder, John Ford. It's this sort of like expansive look at, at sort of Hollywood as it was in the olden days. But yeah, no. So, so I was I was very I was thrilled to sort of guest on the Movie Palace um, a couple of weeks ago talking about Gilda, uh, which was great fun. Um, and we thought that we should uh, we should do it again sometime, and maybe we should come over to each other's places and talk about a movie that's kind of in both of our interests. So a movie that would be both belong to the classic age of Hollywood and on the two fifty. Um, and a delight. Oh, <laughs> so it, yeah. <laughs> and I think for that reason, like, like the 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 joy of this movie wasn't obviously um, uh, for for it being um, so high on the IMDb <laughs> list. I think it, it was so refreshing to watch um, one of those classic um, golden age Hollywood movies, and this mo- movie very much. Um, is it sort of uh, typifies that, that yeah, sort of yeah. like old school aesthetic because it's it's worth talking about this actually just in terms of like the IMDb 250 because again this is a this is a show about the list in some way shape and form it's yeah. worth noting that there are I know everybody loves when Darren takes out the list of the statistics <laughs> and the numbers nothing I gets to say obvious I just said a moment ago obviously we weren't interested in this because of its ranking on the, <laughs> the 250 like, and, and Darren's like oh don't worry I have stats like, and charts let me tell you out of yeah. 26,759 <laughs> votes yeah you know what the most uh, frequent uh, rating was? And it's like, no, tell us. <laughs> yeah, we're very yeah. riveted. This is very exciting. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I just think one of the things that's interesting about the 250, we talked about this in the podcast before, is that it's it's a list that reflects a very certain like sensibility of movie going, a very certain sense of cinephilia, a very certain sort of like sense of, of being a movie fan, a very sort of like codified sense of what good movies are and what we define as the movies that are important. And sort of noting that like a lot of those movies are geared towards like the 90s. Um, as you might expect for a website that has a, like a target audience of young men who would have came of age during the 90s. So do you want to take a guess and guess how many movies are on the list from the period of 1940 through to 1949? Right. Well, we discussed the 1930s, didn't we, on my podcast? And I believe the number was seven, indeed. was it? And so, yes, it so was. So my guess would be for the 40s, but it goes up a bit. So I'm going to I'm gonna plump for 15. Oh, Lower. 10? It's 11. It's, yeah, it's 11 um, on there. There's 25 from the 50s, there's 16 from the 60s, and then it sort of gradually builds through the 70s, the modern day. So the, the 40s, that sort of golden age of Hollywood is very much sort of underrepresented on a list of the top 250 movies ever made, which is kind of strange 
when you look at it because obviously that's a period that dominates more sort of prestigious lists like the AFI list for example the BFI list if you want to pick other examples but it, it's very much it seems like when you get to the IMDb 250 there's very much a, a recency bias a modernity bias in some ways so it's kind of it's it was very interesting for us mm. myself and Andrew to watch the film and to sort of come and talk to it because I think it's the first film we've covered from that period we covered like the third man a little while sorry, sorry we covered uh, Touch of yeah. Evil a little while ago uh, from the 50s um, and I think we covered the general from the twenties. We covered, uh, we did cover. Um, it's a wonderful life. Um, yes, we we also did um, Mr. Smith. That's right. That's nineteen thirty nine. Oh yeah, nineteen thirty nine. Yeah. yeah. So, but uh, relatively speaking, we're a hundred and four, hundred and five episodes into the podcast, and we only we can count on one hand the number of movies we covered from before nineteen fifty. Which I'm happy is with the amount we've done. <laughs> <laughs> like be, be, because the 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 thing is that I find. I find most of the movies in the cinema these days were released in 2018. So <laughs> so it's not often I get to see a movie from the 30s or 40s. This um this podcast that we that we have I think has resulted in us watching and uh, some and while there could be more representation of it it's kind of like um it's just so democratic mm. that's like, I, I I mean um you have to almost rejoice when, 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 when you find that um, that uh, one of the kind of usual suspects yeah. hasn't has has hasn't popped up. I, I believe the usual suspects is, is one of the usual is suspects. One of the usual suspects. Uh, yeah. But but that that's the IMDb perspective. What about your own, Carl? What do you make of of like? So what is your impression of Double Indemnity? I mean, this is a film that's long been a favorite of mine. So it's actually quite an interesting challenge to kind of prepare for this really because i've never really had to sort of sit down and think about why it's a favorite you know it's it's not a film i've ever like written about anywhere uh never podcasted about it before never really talked about it much generally because you know one of the things with me is that, like a lot of my friends aren't really film fans and if they are they're not always kind of au fait with older stuff you know but now i mean i love this film for a lot of reasons to be honest i think that um there was actually a line that jumped out at me this time which I hadn't kind of picked up on before, but it kind of encapsulates why it's when it's later on when uh, the character of Keys, played by Edward G. Robinson, says about the crime, you know, it all fits together like a watch. And when I'm watching this film, it's like, you know, I just feel like I'm in the grip of storytellers who know exactly what they're doing. They're in complete control. And it, it contrasts quite nicely, I think, then, Darren, with the film you and I discussed previously, Gilda, where I don't feel there's that kind of level of... Um, finesse and control at play in that film but here here i really do and it's a feeling i often get when i'm watching billy wilder's films in general to be honest and it's certainly an important film i mean you talked about the time period and so on i think it's important to the way noir develops but even if you set that aside i think it's still a fabulous entertainment i think it's a really masterful adaptation of the novella by james m kane and it's just uh, it's also as well a really uh, good example of fine casting too i think so there are lots of reasons why I like Double Indemnity, uh, why I love Double Indemnity, but those are a few of them, I suppose. It's worth noting, actually, when you mentioned the idea of like this being a usually influential film noir, you know, most people wouldn't say it's it's the first. Most people point to earlier films, for example, but it is one of the first formative ones. And in particular, um, Adam Frost at the BFI, he singled this out as the most noiriest noir that ever noired. I think is exactly <laughs> how he phrased it. But he... I was just thinking the same thing. And 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 you you mentioned you mentioned Billy Wilder and you mentioned the 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 um it being an adaptation. It it it, it was it was uh, Raymond Chandler also 
He wrote, Raymond Chandler worked on the script. It's, yes. it, it, this had a very, very interesting story in getting from from state from sort of like from development to screen because it was based on Kane who wrote the book. He originally began as a crime reporter and he covered the Ruth Snyder case in the late twenties, uh, which is famous for a number of reasons, including it was the first shot of a person being executed that was printed on the first page on the front page of an American newspaper. Uh, but the case was basically this woman had conspired with this other party to murder her husband for the insurance money. And that served as the basis of two of Kane's usually influential novellas. Uh, the first one being The Postman Always Rings Twice. Um, and then this ah. one as well. Um, and the issue was with this... Similar. Oh yeah, well they, they are quite similar. And I mean, like they're... Kane, Kane is a hugely influential writer just based on those two stories Seems alone. like an angry guy. <laughs> a very, very angry guy, a very cynical yes. guy. Um, and I mean, one of the things is that when he shopped around, so the novella I think was originally published, was it Liberty Magazine in eight parts? Yep. Um, it was a relatively short story, uh, but he basically shopped it around Hollywood. And again, the Breen at the Hayes office sort of shut this down by sending a memo around the studio saying there was no way that this sort of salacious story could ever be made into a film because it's just so gratuitous and sleazy and without any moral oh, we'll love it yeah. <laughs> and without any more we morally... can't have this yeah. and without any morally redeeving features or anything like that and it's kind of uh, so what we really want is those movies that have kids with pigtails in them. <laughs> yeah um, can we can we shoehorn a, a kid with pigtails into this one um, what is it it's it's Mr. Smith goes to Washington yes. has the boxcar massacre um <laughs> but um they, they shopped it around in fact mccain kane would complain later on that the delay the breen office the breen basically at the hayes office had delayed the production of the film so much that it cost him ten thousand uh, dollars kane would become a very litigious figure in fact like you talk about the influence that this movie had on later noirs kane would famously try and sue <laughs> the writer of every film noir that included a plot with a, an adulterous wife or a attempt dame. to murder a husband a dame um uh, voiceover narration, stuff like that. But he, he was very litigious. He didn't win any of the cases, but he always went to the Writers Guild claiming that he'd been ripped off for like virtually every important film noir that had followed. Um, uh, sure, surely surely um, they were juicing Chandler for, to, 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 to get it even noirier. Well, yeah, well, the, the story with Chandler is fantastic. I suspect you know some of this, Carl, the, the story between like the dynamic that existed between Chandler and Billy Wilder, which is apparently legendary uh, in sort of Hollywood circles. Yeah, they had a bit of a tetchy relationship is, is what I understand, even down to, I think, uh, I think Wilder turned up for work one day and Chandler had kind of submitted a memo to a producer or somebody kind of complaining about all the Wilder's kind of habits that kind of um, were kind of off-putting to Chandler, things like wearing his hat indoors and, and stuff like this. But... Yeah, my my, pers my personal favourite... Well, yeah, Chandler, Chandler really didn't like that. Like, this is the thing. When Wilder had obviously read, like, The Big really Sleep... I'm glad I live now. And <laughs> <laughs> like, not in an age where people complain about hats <laughs> indoors. Yeah, I know. People complain about people being very sensitive now. Yeah. Uh, but, like, there's, there's this thing with Wilder where uh, Wilder had read The Big Sleep, which was obviously the big Raymond Chandler book. And it's, sort of, it's wonderful. It's noir. It's got this heavy atmosphere. It's got this wonderful prose. And he sort of... He expected from that that when Chandler showed up he'd be like this grisly like private detective type figure with like this American accent chewing a toothpick with these wry one-liners and observations on human nature and what, what Wilder got in his own world words was a middle-aged accountant yeah, yeah. um <laughs> so that's what this movie needed in Paris <laughs> uh, I, I'm uh are certainly an actuary the the, the the um I suppose the 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 um 
But just, just on the differences, like the reason why Chandler complained about Wilder wearing his hat indoors was because Chandler claimed that it created an atmosphere where he was afraid that Wilder would famously would leave. <laughs> it created an atmosphere of uncertainty. He was never sure whether Wilder was going to leave the room or not because he was always wearing his yeah. hat. Uh, Chandler was apparently a very uh, awkward person to work with. He famously showed up at this first studio meeting and said, I will, I will write this under two conditions. First condition is... You must pay me at least $700 to write this script. And the second condition is that I must have at least a week to write it. Um, and the studio executives were like, okay, I think we can meet those conditions. Um, famously, when he, he did write it in a week, um, and then Wilder read it and apparently threw it across the room and basically insisted that they rewrite it together. Chandler famously struggled with alcoholism mm. uh, while writing. And in particular, like it's been argued that like after Wilder made this film, um, he made The Lost Weekend. Yes. Which apparently won, it, it like swept the Oscars in that year. And many have argued that it was like like the, like Scorsese winning for The Departed. It was like a retroactive Oscar, retroactive recognition for this film, which was nominated for seven Oscars, but won zero. But The Lost Weekend is a story of like alcoholism and depression and this sort of spiral of self-destruction. And Wilder has argued, and I guess it depends on how much you read the dynamic between like Chandler and Wilder as either mutual fascination or mutual hatred. But it was either Wilder basically delivering one gigantic screw you um, to Chandler in the form of like his next Oscar winning movie. Yeah. Or more charitably, it was Wilder trying to understand Chandler, trying to get underneath his skin. Because like there's even within this film, there's copious amounts of alcohol consumption in there. There's a moment where... It wouldn't be a... <laughs> a 50s film noir. A yeah, 40s film with, noir. With, 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 without that. The, 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 um, the thing you said about the hat reminded me of something in the movie where, um, where the, 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 the president yeah, yeah. is, is, is chastising him for not wearing an overcoat. Yeah. Or for, 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 for not wearing a blazer. Yeah. Yeah, it's like he has a three-piece suit with two. There's another there's another uh, aspect to the the Wilder Chandler relationship, which I thought was interesting in in the way Wilder tell or told it anyway, which was that you know Wilder had quite an active romantic life apparently, so he's taking calls from various women during the day while they're trying to be you know while they're sat working on the script and Chandler I think was kind of a a single man who didn't really have the same kind of attention, so I think Wilder kind of supposed there was a bit of jealousy between the two men. But I think that, you know, whatever the, the tensions that were evident, uh, their work, their collaborative work on the film ultimately was superb. And another kind of um, fascinating wrinkle to that is that Chandler was apparently pretty contemptuous of James M. Kane. You know, wasn't really a fan of his writing at all. Uh, even though there, there are some things that problematize this, I think there is, there's one or two memos from Chandler to Kane and, and back, uh, you know, back and forth, where they're kind of a bit more pleasant with each other. But I think Chandler is on record as being, you know, uh, kind of looking down his nose at Kane's writing. And it sounds to me from what I've read about the way Wilder and Chandler work that they thought really carefully about how you transfer Kane's dialogue to the screen. Because what they sort of discovered early on is like what works on the page just didn't really work so well when it was coming out of the mouths of actors you know so i think one thing they man managed to do really well is they kind of retain the harshness of the original story um but they they sort of streamline you know they make all these structural improvements but they also inject i think the wit that i find you know really uh something to cherish about this film yeah. 
that's uh, that's one of the first things I thought yeah. when I when I was looking at the uh, at the at the the uh, credits for this movie at the beginning the the, the um, because I knew nothing about this that's that's uh, that's generally where I come in and it's generally where I leave a movie. <laughs> Um, the, but but seeing seeing Billy Wilder based based on my limited kind of knowledge of Billy Wilder movies, I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. But then the 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 the, the opening um, kind of shots were and and the music kind of led me to believe, um, and and the title of the movie led me to question whether this was going to be one of these uh, um, like kind of um, farcical. Yeah, um, Billy Billy Wilder movie. It's not quite like, some like it hot. Huh? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's most people's kind of um, even even people who haven't seen a lot of old movies or people who haven't done a deep dive of Billy Wilder will have seen some like it hot mm. at least or the apartment or whatever. But I mean, this is the thing. This was only Wilder's third film, which is remarkable. Yeah, only his third film, and I think a lot of people have argued that this is the first one that really, you know, is is a Billy Wilder film through and through. You know. And I think, you know, if we're going to talk about Wilder in general, I think he is a great filmmaker. And it's kind of kind of like you're touching on there, Andrew, like he excelled in a range of genres. So, yeah, a lot of people would associate him with some like a heart of the apartment or whatever. But for me, I think my favorites of his would be this film, Dublin Indemnity, uh, Sunset Boulevard. And he did, he did a film with Kirk Douglas called Ace in the Hole, which has kind of had a bit of a rediscovery in the last kind of decade or two. Um but I think in general, Wilder is just a great example of the kind of energizing effect that like European migrants had on Hollywood cinema at this time, you know. But he's also got this great like cynicism running through his body of work that I just find delicious, you know. That's one of the things I like best about all those films I mentioned. But he was just, he seems like he's kind of alive to the rhythms and, you know, the cadences, like the particular cadences of like American English in a way that maybe that's kind of his migrant status he's kind of bringing to bear on it. But, you know, kind of dialogue that would seem cliched to other people. He just seems to kind of take it and run with it, you know. I mean, I know he often worked with co-writers. Like, he'd, he'd work prolifically with a guy called Charles Brackett, obviously Chandler here, and then he's got a, he's got a long-term collaborator after uh, IAL Diamond. But I still think, you know, I think Wilder deserves a lot of credit for that too, to be honest. Oh yeah, there's definitely a lot in Wilder's work of the sort of like the outsider looking in at like American culture and stuff like that. I mean, I, I listened to the, the commentary on the disc before we sort of watched the movie itself. Mm. And they talk a little bit about how like Wilder has strenuously denied the sort of various influences that people have tried to place on the work. So for example, you know, this film was made in the middle of the Second World War, uh, but it's consciously set in 1938. And Wilder has denied the idea that it was influenced by the Second World War. He's also denied that it was influenced by Chandler's other work even though like Chandler's a writer on it for example as well but there is this sense of like an outsider looking in and you get a lot I think you're right when you point to like the the immigration of European directors like to America in the 30s and 40s for obvious reasons and the sort of like the outsider sort of looking in because like when you watch Double Indemnity it feels very much like it's it's almost like a sort of a, a stylized version of America. Like, I, I don't know. I wasn't alive in like 1938 where the film set or 1943 when the film was made. I don't know if people used baby that frequently in conversation <laughs> or or if like, they does, talked about it games. It come across a lot. Yeah. Like, um, he, yeah, I, I, I don't know if, if anyone ever will or, or um, either um, call, call people baby so much. I mean, we have some time on, on the podcast 
to see if if we can say baby as many times right. as they did in the movie. But I don't think we'll get I there. I don't think we'll get quite enough size. No, probably not. Darren, since you mentioned, yeah, since you, since we're still talking generally and you mentioned the commentary, I mean, I noticed you were kind of, um, you took to Twitter in tabloid parlance, didn't you? You had a few issues with the commentary. And I, <laughs> I was just wondering, because I, I only had a chance to listen to the first few minutes this morning. So I don't think I picked up on uh, what you saw in it. But what, what what was the problem there exactly? Well, I mean, okay, the, the commentary is great. It's two people who really know what they're talking about, talking about the work of Billy Wilder and talking about, like, the film and talking about the legacy of the films and the production issues of the film. And it, it's it's very informative from that point of view. And it's, it's two people who genuinely love the movie. And I, I genuinely love the movie as well. But you get that towards the end of the commentary, you have this sort of discussion that you tend to fall into when you talk about old films, where you talk about, like, you know, the, the, it's the they don't make them like this anymore discussion, which is entirely fair. They don't make them like this anymore. Well, if they did, then they would they would be trying um, like uh, specifically to recreate these yes. kind of movies. This is like you said earlier. This is the noirist, a noir that ever noired. But yeah. I mean, uh, there's also like within that discussion, and that, that discussion is fine, and it's entirely fair. And I think that it's it's accurate to say they don't make them like this anymore. Just like they don't make them like Apocalypse Now anymore. Just like they don't even make them like Pulp Fiction anymore at this point. But it, it's when you get there, that discussion sort of morphs into like a talk about how. Films are stupider now and audiences are stupider now and executives have more contempt for audiences now than they used to. And that's a that's an attitude that I find kind of wary and alienating when we talk about old cinema and we talk about because I mean, like old films are fantastic. This is brilliant. This is one of the best films ever made. But you have to keep in mind that at the same time that this was being released, you were having like huge swaths of Westerns released to flood cinemas that were owned by studio chains to make sure that there was a different film every week where you had films that didn't even barely had script that were being sort of sent to you know into production and that were being screened and filmed that we've forgotten about now many of which have actually been yeah. like destroyed and deleted like there's so the thing that people talk about a lot these days is they say um oh um there's an awful lot of remakes as well and and the remakes aren't very good but you'll you'll like it will be it'll be like 15 or 20 years from now that we that we'll have some of those kind of the good ones that we that we'll be able to point to and go back to yeah and we won't think about like all of the uh, crappy ones that yeah. didn't need to get made no, nobody's because gonna... they'll just disappear into irrelevant that's it 20 years from now nobody will be talking about the meg even if the meg is a terrible film that's being released right now and i just I, like I, I find that that sort of argument sort of when we talk about old films i find that there's a tendency to dismiss the now as a moment that is that has its own merits that are completely separate and not necessarily better or worse than like because i mean we talk that we don't have any perspective yeah and and also that you're looking at a different thing so i mean it's hard to say that uh, like a a cinematic cli- climate that produces films like double indemnity is that objective objectively better or worse than a climate that enables films as small as moonlight or ladybird to get made and it's hard to quantify that for me and i thought that was that was one of the issues i had with the commentary that was otherwise very very informative very well made uh two people who clearly loved the film and who clearly went deep on wilder as influences his legacy and also just in terms of they had a lot of wonderful anecdotes about wilder which were really really fantastic as well i mean i think we've talked about it on this podcast about about how like I've complained that um, certain types of movies don't get made anymore. The the and uh, even uh, like more more recent generations of movies like like, like the, the social commentary movies like, of the eighties, Andrew. Yeah, so like... of the, of, the, of the kind of Re- Reagan era sci-fi, yeah. where 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 there's where it's always a comment on on how everything's getting sold out. So like Aliens, Robocop, that sort of stuff. Yeah, also. yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. But... Well, in terms of 
like obviously the commentary I haven't heard all of it so I can't really pass judgment on that but in terms of a general kind of attitude you're describing yeah it definitely sounds like you know I'm very wary of like dogmatic thinking you know and I think it definitely is true I think that you know um because I have a look in like various like Facebook groups and stuff about old movies, sometimes share the podcast in there and that kind of thing. And this is kind of an attitude you see. Um, it's quite prevalent, it seems to me. I think you also do get the the kind of flip side of it too. But maybe it's not quite so widespread where, you know, maybe, maybe um, not everybody has as good a grasp on film history as, as you would like, you know, um, not just movie fans, but maybe reviewers possibly sometimes. And like I say, whenever you get beyond a personal preference for a certain aesthetic style or something like that into kind of rigid dogma I think that's kind of regrettable you know yeah and and the other thing I guess to say is that you can come at it the opposite way and you can say kind of movies don't get made like this anymore and isn't it good that they're not because you can and if you're of a certain kind of aesthetic because you can point at these movies and you can say the acting is isn't quite what it, what 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 it is these days in some in 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 some cases of course you can it depends what what uh what kind of performance you're looking at and what movie you're looking at like you look at something like citizen kane and all of the actors are coming from theater and and they're all uh, uh fantastic but it, like like for example you you look at an older movie and they're all speaking mid atlantic and um and and you have some kind of like performances where where it 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 just wouldn't really um pass muster these days. But again, I mean that and, that's and, that's an argument though. That's more doctors differ patients die. Like I would have a certain fondness for a stylized performance. Like I think William Shatner is one of the greatest actors of his generation. <laughs> uh, but I do in think... terms of dialogue as well. Like it, it, well, it, I think that there's like in American cinema. I think as you get into the fifties, certainly you get this drive towards naturalism. You know, yes. and I think it comes out in performance it comes out in like location shooting and stuff like that so i guess the thing with earlier films is like um you need maybe like the the parrot the dominant kind of paradigm is a less uh, naturalistic style of acting so it's not necessarily better or worse in my opinion but it is you know quantifiably different to what comes along when you get people like marlon brando and montgomery clift and you know people like that who kind of shake things up a bit you know uh, or if you if you believe Ethan Hawke, uh, Nicholas Cage, who is the only actor to have done anything interesting with the art form since Marlon Brando. But that's a separate podcast. Uh, not not De Niro, not De Niro. <laughs> no, no, no. He's going. Uh, I think Nicholas Cage is going back to a more stylized, <laughs> less naturalistic. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's funny you should mention like the idea of like the canon and the idea of sort of like because I I do think I do think you have a very fair point in that a lot of people don't necessarily give older movies fair due. It's very hard to convince young people sometimes to watch movies that are in black and white that are stylized in the these ways that are even in 4.3 aspect ratio as opposed to 16.9 but i do think it's it's worth noting in terms of like having a canon and having sort of this sort of prestigious idea of what movies are like billy wilder would famously have been excluded from these i think andrew saras who was one of the earliest auteurists famously listed billy wilder as one of the most overrated directors in american cinema because he wasn't an auteur in the way that saras thought that auteurs should be in the way that hitchcock was in the way that ford was 
And I feel like you, you get that sort of attitude. And even at the time, American cinema sort of looked down at people like Hitchcock. Hitchcock didn't get recognition until, you know, uh, Cahier du Cinema over in, in, in sort of France sort of acknowledged the work that he was doing. And this this is the list, yeah. though, for, for overrated film directors because <laughs> it's based on rating. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, sorry, but that is that is a bit of a tangent. But yeah, I think like... Wilder's... Well, no, it's, it's really... Sorry, it's really interesting because with Hitchcock, like I've just recently been reading a book um of criticism by you know the novelist graham green he was writing film criticism at the time he was also writing stuff like brighton rock and stuff like that and it's just striking to me because he really wasn't a fan of hitchcock and then he came back and wrote you know when this book was published he comes back in like the early 70s i think and he does a foreword and he's kind of still unapologetically you know not a hitchcock fan and you definitely write about the you know the, the kind of shifting attitudes on wilder and stuff like that and i wonder if it was maybe people didn't as readily see like uh an identifiable visual style with him like they did with people like hawks or ford maybe that's why i'm not sure possibly because he kind of switched between uh modes and genres so much maybe i don't know yeah, no, it, it is like his his framing and his composition. I think isn't as as sort of sharp as as many of his contemporaries. And in terms of like auteurism, that's what you tend to look at. You look at the sort of the positioning of the camera, the iconic shots, and stuff like that. I mean, I think that like Double Indemnity has a number of really great shots and sequences. Like for example, the scene um, of, of Barbara Sandsworth coming down the stairs with the anklet shining, which happens like twice in the course of the film. It's like a wonderful bit of visual storytelling. Not only because it's a great shot. I don't know. I don't. I I feel like um, that anklet was spoken about a lot and i don't think i ever actually saw the anklets i think it's difficult to see a a, a gold or silver anklet against against a black white a, a ankle in black and white mm. um, well i wonder i wonder if you were distracted by her like you know her, horrendous her wig um, <laughs> her, um, her, her wig yeah the famous wig um which wilder well, you couldn't often see it at the same time as her ankles. There's, there's a story that one of the producers said, you know, we're paying all this money to get Barbara Stanwyck and we've got George Washington, you know, because of the way. You know, yeah, I mean, funny. Wilder famously, I think even two weeks into the shoot, he decided that he absolutely hated the wig, but he didn't have time to go back and reshoot the scenes that they'd already <laughs> shot with it. So he was sort of stuck with it, which is quite nice. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, a, it's, not, a, it's not a great wig. Uh, spe- uh, um, go- going back to kind of like um, uh, Nicholas Cage, I guess <laughs> we can talk about wigs um, and bad hairstyles. But yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about Double Indemnity. Let's sort of jump into like talking about like the substance of it and and the material behind it. Um, in terms of like our podcast, what we normally do is we normally ask sort of three questions uh, okay. before we jump in to talk about this. So, so Carl, I think we'll go first. So the first th- the three questions we ask are: Do you think that this movie belongs on the list of the top two hundred fifty movies ever made? Yes, I do. Okay, that was an easy one. Second question, and I suspect the answer will be quite similar. I don't know why this is a separate question, okay. but let's go with it. Do you, Does it belong on your own personal 250? It does, and it would be probably quite a bit higher than 88 for me, I must say. Yeah. But I'm actually surprised it was as high as 88. I, I, I had a guess. I thought it'd be at about 130 for some reason. Well, I mean, yeah, a lot of these movies are trailing off. And in fact, this movie is trailing off. I think it's dropped 30 How places in the last 10, 15 years. Um, and I mean, we saw the same with Touch of Evil, which we covered a little while ago, where that is Touch of Evil's on the way out. By the time we release this podcast, there's a decent chance that like Touch of Evil won't be in the 250. Um, and that the list tends to happen. Like Dog Day Afternoon, for example, had a very slow and gradual decline through the list, as it tends to happen. There's a very steady churn that happens. Do, do we know if this is the top Billy Wilder film? I guess some like it hot's probably got a chance of being... Higher, or... 
Uh, we t- we can find that out, but before while while I uh, while I go and find that out, um, do you want? Yeah, I'm 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 going to ask you then. Uh, for people who haven't seen this movie, or pe- or for people who have seen this movie and are wondering if maybe a second watch uh, might be worth it, would you recommend they they uh, stop this podcast, uh, go out and watch it, or if they're listening to this live, um, I don't know what they do. But would you recommend it? If somebody's listening to this and has seen the film previously, I'd recommend they continue with the podcast, listen to what we've got to say, (laughs) and then go back and watch it, I think. I mean, I was wondering about this, like, if you're going to select one film to explain what film noir is to somebody, would this be a good one to show people? And I'm in two minds, to be honest, and I wonder what you guys think. Because, like, on the one hand, it's a superb choice, because it's like an archetypal film noir in many respects, you know, that we can kind of touch on. On the other hand, I wonder if, you're kind of setting people up for a fall in the sense that most film noirs aren't anywhere near as good as this. So if you show this to somebody first... Everything measures, You know, yeah. there might be a bit of disappointment further yeah, along no. the line. Yeah, so I'd be tempted to go to something earlier and, you know, kind of show people stuff kind of a bit more chronologically, maybe. Maybe something like the Maltese Falcon. But uh, I don't know. You could definitely do worse than selecting this one for that, maybe, I suppose. Maybe cho- choose a really bad one. <laughs> yeah. Although, do you, do you get people to kind of just... Watch tap, a second one. Tap out of them. Yeah, yeah. Get one of those ones that uh, that Kane sued. <laughs> Over. Well, well, when when Darren and I were talking about Gilda, and Darren made the very fair point that that's a film that a lot of people, you know, offer as like a backup suggestion. Like, oh, you've seen Double Indemnity, you've seen The Big Sleep. Well, maybe Gilda's not a bad one to, to kind of pick out. I, I wonder if maybe Gilda's a good introduction because it kind of sums up noir in a lot of ways, but it's so rickety. In other respects, that you kind of you you're leaving people with stuff that you know that um, they can then go off and enjoy the classics afterwards, I suppose. But you I can don't know. sort of climb from that. Just in terms of getting back to the Billy Wilder thing, it's actually the third highest ranked Billy Wilder film oh. on the two fifty. It's higher than the Apartment. It's higher than Some mm. Like It Hot. It's lower than Sunset Boulevard, and it's lower than Witness for the Prosecution. Ah, that's fascinating. I haven't actually, I'll, I'll confess, I haven't seen Witness for the Prosecution, but I didn't think that was quite so highly regarded uh, generally. So that's r- really interesting. Yeah, Sunset Boulevard is at 56 and Witness for the Prosecution is at 65, uh, mm, which is quite wow. impressive. And there's five in total. There's five in total, that's, which is yeah. quite impressive. I think that you like... You can't hit... really complain too much about representation <laughs> of... Um... Uh, of classic cinema. Yeah. Well, I mean, because you got to keep in mind that like Hitchcock's at seven, Nolan's at seven, Scorsese's at seven, Spielberg's at seven. So Wilder at five isn't too bad. No. Yeah, he's doing uh, good. Doing good. Yep. He's indeed. Uh, but yeah, so with that in mind then, Andrew, what about yourself? Would this yeah, movie be... No, um, it's difficult for me to say having only, having only seen it uh, yesterday evening. Um, but... Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have any complaints with it being on the list. Um, uh, and I'm glad that it is. Uh, would it be on mine? Um, possibly. It 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 possibly would. I mean, it's got it's got lots of things I enjoy. Um, uh, femme fatales. Um, in insurance salespeople. <laughs> Office <laughs> politics. Office <laughs> politics. Actuaries. Bureaucracy. Um, yeah. Um. So um and moina, um uh although although uh, yeah it's although, not just the rates that are moida. <laughs> Sorry. Um so yeah I I I, I suppose I I enjoy I enjoy the noiriness of it, um as well 
um it it reminded me it reminded me of um i guess we'll put it in the show notes but the the um <laughs> I, I was i was showing darren this yesterday evening <laughs> um the, pause the film so that we can enjoy yeah there's there was there was a podcast called mike detective which kind okay. of like made fun of the the whole kind of um uh film noir sort of mm. um uh the, the genre, the genre. Style, yeah. yeah like a, a pi kind of like akin to yeah, yeah. Uh, chinatown but very kind of chandlery and even <laughs> even some of the kind of sequences in this movie yeah there's the, there the, the, the first the flirtation the opening flirtation seems to have been lifted directly andrew broke mm. out giggling during it and had to explain why that was, uh, when it was so are, are, you, are you talking about the um how fast was i going officer yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 suppose i'm a police officer suppose i pull you over um, <laughs> It's a very detailed bit of uh, role play you guys are going for there. I kind of admire it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, for 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 those reasons, like the influence it has, and the kind of um, like um, it's it's <clears throat> there's a kind of a joy in um, in watching these movies and 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 just kind of um, them being like this kind of uh, nostalgic artifact in a way. But also um, just being really enjoyable on our own terms, also. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I I'd be I'd be tempted to have it without without having the perspective of having kind of gone away from it and come back or anything like that. But would I recommend people go out and see it? Um. Absolutely. Um. Or indeed stay in and see it. Um. And yeah, if uh, if if you haven't seen it already, watch it now. And, and and then I guess uh, join us on the other side of the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So Carl, what is Double Indemnity about for you? For me, it's about the way a man is derailed by his sexual obsession that kind of uh, emerges for uh, Phyllis Dietrichson, played by Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, un- unhappily, she wants to uh, bump off her husband, so they hatch a plan to uh, kill him in an elaborate way, so as to claim on the insurance, because uh, there's a, a double indemnity clause, which I believe they say it means that uh, you get paid double in certain kinds of uh, for certain kinds of deaths. That's kind of it's a like, it's like a jackpot. It's it's, it's yeah. like a murder incentive. It's on page fifteen of your policy documents. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a little known. <laughs> um, I do love the double double indemnities. It's basically like a death jackpot. It's like um, yeah, we're sorry your your spouse only died in a regular boring way, so you only get the regular settlement. However, <laughs> if they died on a train, <laughs> it's like ding 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 ding. I like to think they have like a house band in that plays when you get double. <laughs> yeah, unhappily for you know these these main characters played by uh, Fred McMurray and, and Stanwyck, there's a guy who McMurray works with, Keys, Barton Keys, who is determined to kind of get to the bottom of this, isn't it? So the tension then in the film after the murder is like, can they get away with it? I suppose. And the really enjoyable thing about this movie is it seems kind of like clever in a way that you can kind of figure out. Um, to to and it's just the right point mm. where 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 you can kind of maybe figure out things before they happen, but also feel happy with yourself that you have figured them out. Yeah, and and, uh, and the film, I think the film is clever. Yeah, 
But what I like about it is that the characters, I don't think, are as clever as they think they are, you know. Right. So I think that there's definitely a sense that, like, Walter Neff's kind of, he thinks he's this tough guy. He's in over his head a bit. And I was thinking about this in terms of casting, and I'm really curious to get, you you know, uh, both of your takes on this. Because, like, one of the things I'm really interested about is, like, film stardom. And I think one reason why this era, uh, this era in particular is fascinating is this was a time where stars and stardom was kind of cultivated and preserved in a very different way to, uh, well, the way things are now, but the way things developed through the 70s and beyond, I suppose. And, and I, what I really like about it is, like, what, what I always think about is, like, casting a particular star, it's always signifying something, whether we, like, appreciate it or not. I wonder if this is complicated by like older movies when I think a lot of people are coming to see Double Indemnity in 2018. You know, I dare say this is the first time they'll have ever seen Fred McMurray or Barbara Stanwyck or Edward G. Robinson on screen. And I, I think I feel like there are some specific kind of resonances that people would have had in 44 that we don't really pick up on today. And I don't think it hurts the film, but I think maybe it changes the way we kind of receive it, if that makes sense. It does indeed. Like, I mean, because one of the things, again, I watched the making of documentary on the um, on the disc, and I wholeheartedly recommend it for people who are interested in the film. I got the Eureka uh, Master Cinema Edition, yeah. or the Blu-ray. And one of the things they say is they talk about how, like, the irony of this is that, like, for Fred McMurray... Um, this movie was casting him very much against type because to a whole generation of people, McMurray would have been known for the work with Disney. Uh, afterwards, he did like Flubber. He did The Son of Flubber. He did The, the Absent-Minded mm-hmm. Professor. Even beforehand, he did like, I think, To Darling with Love. He did a whole host of these sort of like soppy romantics or like family-friendly stuff. I mean, he was even like, he became a sitcom dad in, uh, was it? It's My Three Sons, I think, during the 70s. Uh, so like McMurray's per- star persona was of the nice guy. Guy, the decent guy the wholesome guy and on the on the making of documentary they discuss the irony of the fact that like the role that he's most known for and the role that people will most likely go back and watch mcmurray and have this be the only mcmurray film that they ever watch is the role in which he's playing very much against type it's like if you were going back and watching a danzel washington filmography and the only film you watched on it was training day Mm. Um, you'd be like, wow, this Denzel Washington, he's very good at playing really nasty people. This is all that he does. It's its really unpleasant. Um, he must have been like a real heavy if you look at the films that he did around this. When you're like, no, this this is a film that exists very much in contrast to his star persona. If I recall correctly, it was very hard to cast Double Indemnity precisely because the leads were so deeply, deeply unpleasant. Yeah, and I was trying to think about this in terms of like, how would the typical moviegoer in 44 have been thinking about this then? And I really do think the casting of McMurray serves the film well, though, in the sense that, like we said, he's associated with these kind of genial roles, genial comedies, wasn't necessarily that highly regarded as an actor overall. So I think this departure for him serves the character well, in the sense that, like I said, he's not as tough as he thinks he is, not as tough as he wants to be. He's not really up to it. He's not really meant for this world. But I think so. I think what I was kind of saying is like I'm not sure contemporary audiences necessarily read that into him so readily, though. You know. Yeah, it's stuff like um, that. Not nobody, none, n- neither, uh, neither himself um, nor Phyllis uh, uh, ever ever stop to think about the um, the accident mm. that 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 he's had the the the, the broken foot. That 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 that, that it. It seems almost like they're going. They're going to stop and say, like, "Oh no, this uh, we we should we, probably adjust based yeah, on this." Or we need to do this quickly because yeah. if he doesn't claim 
uh, for this within the next few days, it's going to seem like he he didn't realize he had this um, policy, which is what set, sets keys off. Yeah, yeah. So you're kind of you're you're, and it's things like that that make you think that they're maybe not so smart. I mean, Keys is set up as this person who is smart, and he is. Um, he's mm. it, it's great to see a person in a movie who's um incredibly smart, but it's not um in any um nefarious kind of, way. Yeah, but and and it's also they're they're not they're not they're not alienating themselves by being um smart in fact they're 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 admired for their in, intelligence in, for 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 their intelligence before we talk about keys can we go back to talk about neff there just for a second because one of the things i find interesting and it's sort of carl when we were talking about like the premise of the film earlier on you were suggesting how neff was led astray one of the mm. things that i find really interesting about double indemnity is how it it kind of fits with this sort of, there's a subgenre of like particular stories and it's a very American sort of subgenre, but it's basically like the most boring serial killer subgenre of storytelling <sighs> where like you have this, this idea of a relatively normal guy who's very plain, very pleasant. He very, he's very boring. He works a very boring job. I mean, here Neff even categorized himself as unmarried with no visible scars <sighs> yeah. as if to say, I'm, I'm like this, the factory model of an American male age between, 30 and 40 i'm the most boring and plain guy you can imagine and there's a sense that runs through the film which we really, really identified with Darren. yeah i mean I, both of <laughs> both of us really but like because it, it's been argued that like the the one of the big differences between double indemnity and other film noirs is that the femme fatale like in most cases the the man is a victim of the woman or that's the sort of stereotype of the film noir is that the man is tempted by the woman and commits an act and is therefore doomed by it but one of the interesting dynamics, and I think it came up in one of the listeners' sort of questions, because you, you suggested sort of listener feedback on this, yep. is the idea that Neff himself is, he kind of wants to do this anyway. Neff is kind of drawn to the idea of like becoming a killer. And it's like, this, is, this isn't a, like a cat, this isn't something that fundamentally changes him. It's a catalyst in the sense that we use catalyst in like a chemical sense. It just accelerates a change that he was always going to make. Because he talks about like, when he's recording his confession, he's like... So we just sat there. She started crying softly like the rain on the window. And we didn't say anything. Maybe she had stopped thinking about it, but I hadn't. I couldn't, because it was all tied up with something I'd been thinking about for years. Since long before I ever ran into Phyllis Diedrichson. Because, you know how it is, Keys. In this business, you can't sleep or try to figure out all the tricks they could pull on you. You're like the guy behind the roulette wheel, watching the customers to make sure they don't crook the house. And then one night, you get to thinking how you could crook the house yourself and do it smart. Because you've got that wheel right under your hands. You know every notch in it by heart. And you figure all you need is a plant out front, a shield to put down the bed. And suddenly, the doorbell rings, and the whole setup is right there in the room with you. And and there's this, this sense that he's been waiting for an opportunity to break bad, as it were. Walter White being another example <laughs> yeah. of the man who always wanted to be, who always wanted an excuse to be monstrous and finally took it when it was presented to him. And Neff seems like that kind of person. When I um, the film. Well, I saw it in a slightly different way in the sense that like when I was watching this film, uh, a quote came to mind that I think is usually attributed to Sophocles, but I think it's kind of disputed who actually said it. And he said that like, the male libido is like being shackled to a madman. And I think it's applicable here because I sort of see it as, you know, Neff's reason, you know, um, gets kind of blinded by his desire for Stanwyck, I think. And I think McMurray puts it across really well. You know, it, like we've kind of touched on those initial flirtations, you know, where he's kind of testing the limits. 
He can't keep his eyes off her ankles and all this kind of stuff. So I just like the idea that like sexual attraction is kind of a corrupting influence here. And I mean, we don't need to get too personal or anything, guys. No. But <laughs> the idea that you can kind of be blinded when you're kind of um, head over heels for someone, I suppose, or when you're kind of lusting after someone is a powerful one, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, Darren doesn't know what you're talking about, but but I I I I, I do agree. They, we're they, talking about getting too personal here, but anyway. um, but the, and and as well, I I think it's it's interesting because I think it's 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 subtly suggesting that he's lusting after this woman, and that they seem to they seem to to finally um um uh, uh, consummate on 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 the sofa. And there's yeah. perhaps a suggestion that maybe it wasn't all he had he had uh, expected, it, uh, expected to it to be because afterwards there 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 are reasons in the story why he doesn't want to spend any time with her, but he's he's he um I got the sense from watching it that 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 maybe he he had this like fantasy in it in his mind that didn't live up to it. And now all of a sudden he wants to spend all the time with the daughter. Yeah. Well, there's, there's the line where like, she actually says, Walter, you don't really care if we see each other or not later in the film. And there's, and there's this wonderful sense. And I love that, like, and because of keys uses this metaphor throughout where he talks about like committing murder. It's like getting on a train with somebody you're stuck and you can't get off without the other person. And the last stop is the cemetery. And I remember watching that and thinking that's a really cynical depiction of marriage that he's talking about, basically. Mm. it's like you know it's like you're now stuck with this person for life basically you're in a sexless carriage (laughs) you don't know where it's going well in in terms of their physical relationship that's a really interesting take and i hadn't really thought of it in those terms but i think you're definitely right there's the suggestion i think that you know they've consummated the relationship there because it comes back from the voiceover doesn't it and he's reclining on the sofa smoking she's fixing a lipstick and so on so i think that's definitely the suggestion that they've kind of had sex I was thinking about this in terms of an issue Darren raised when we were chatting before about Gilda, where I think if I'm not kind of butchering what you said, Darren, you were sort of saying, you know, because of the Hayes office and the, and all that kind of thing, often these films can't really be about what they're really about. And I was wondering about how this applies to Double Indemnity. And I think in, in, in a funny sort of way, I think the relatively chaste presentation of those two kind of serves the story quite well in the sense that I sort of saw him as being still on the hook, you know, but he wants a bit more from Phyllis, but they can't really be together for various reasons. And I think the fact they're not constantly together in too explicit a way actually serves proceedings quite, quite well here. But I'm curious what, what you thought. I'd be, I'd be more of a sense that I, I think that the, the, and again, I don't, I don't want to, be too complaining we're going to get to talk about the end when we talk about the end i think like the constraints of like 1940s cinema were most obvious in the ending of the film which we'll talk about when we get there yeah i actually like the sexless quality of of the movie because i mean everybody knows sex was invented in the 1950s but um like the the sexless quality of the movie kind of works well for me because it it makes it seem like neff is Neff is, is less interest. I, I see. I, I never really bought into Neff being entirely invested in 
the sex. I I, I never believed that Neff, Neff is sort of lusting in and, a real tangible and, way. And yet I, Carl and I did. Which is very strange. I, I see I see this more as like Neff having like a dirty weekend or it's like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna break all the rules. I'm gonna go out there, I'm gonna break bad, I'm gonna do everything that society expects me not to do. And adultery is just like one of the things on the checklist that includes murder and insurance fraud. That's entirely not the case. Okay. I I I and they, it's it's it, this is coming I think it's coming from your perspective, Darren. <laughs> Who's been well behaved for all of his life. And just one day <laughs> dreams of like getting away with massive yeah, insurance. So the, the, that's almost the more arousing thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the vicarious thrill of outwitting uh, my Dar- co-workers. Darren and I both work for a cautiously undisclosed <laughs> financial <laughs> services <laughs> company. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, we spend our time thinking. Thinking about the ways that we could crook the roulette wheel, so to speak. Um, I, think, I, think some, I think some of what we talking about is probably a function of the fact that there's this constant dancing around the production code of course yeah. i think the only reason double indemnity could have been made at this point even a few years earlier it would have been tricky is that i think there'd been a very very slight kind of liberalization in the kind of interpretation of the code in the early 40s and then all of a sudden you know um adapting something like double indemnity becomes more of a a real prospect you know so i i think that's tying into it i also think there's a kind of a sense that the real love story here i mean you mentioned the character of lola but we shouldn't forget the character of keys really you know the male relationship between neff and keys is kind of integral too isn't it it is absolutely and they actually they're the characters who say i love you to one another yeah and i don't think it's great yeah i don't think it's explicitly i don't think it's as coded homoerotically as we talked about gilda gilda (laughs) is one of like the great gay love stories of the code era in that it's very much a story about two men who are happy until a woman shows up um, I think it's, that it's that article from the Onion where it's clarifying that Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street weren't gay; they were pansexual perverts who would do anything <laughs> to get themselves off, not just uh, not not any particular kind of inclination or, or orientation or description or identity. Yeah, they, they. Yeah, I definitely agree with Darren. I mean, I, I was thinking, should I come on the podcast and try and kind of make this case that you know there is this homoerotic. Uh, are these overtones in their pairing? I don't think there are, but I mean, you you can't you can read it like there's there's like they put cigarettes in each other's mouths and light them. Um, you if you want to make a Freudian like subtextual reading, you can, but I I never really bought that. I think like Neff, I think the love is platonic, and I think that Neff is in some ways more engaged with Keys than he is with either of the women in the film. But I don't think it's sexual. I think again, and this is because Darren is a boring on, you, you financial don't... services person. It's more like he's getting a vicarious <laughs> thrill out of beating Keys at his own game because Keys is like the best at what he does. And Neff is like, well, hey, mm. and, and there's an implication that runs through the film that Keys sort of like he likes Neff. He likes Neff a lot, but he doesn't necessarily respect him professionally to the point where like he when Neff is taking the call and, you know, it's Margie and he's making remarks about, oh, she sounds like she drinks out of the bottle. It's almost like Keyes expects Neff to be like this disheveled sort of like catting around individual with no respect for the work that he's doing. And he's like, I, you know, I thought you were smart. Turns out you were just taller. Like it's there's a sense that Neff wants to impress Keys, but in a professional sense and to prove that he's better than Keys by like beating Keys at his own game, by constructing an elaborate insurance fraud that even Keys can't crack. Yeah. You don't light a man's cigar <laughs> if if you're not interested in him sexually. Like you're sending mixed mixed messages there. That there's there's another scene between the two of them that I think's pivotal though. And I think in general, uh 
Robinson's character makes the whole endeavor a bit more palatable here. And I think that's probably one of the best things uh, Chandler and Wilder did in adapting the novella is kind of um, beef up his presence and make him a bit more likable. Because I think it's kind of crucial to the way we understand Neff as well, because I think actually he does see qualities in Walter that they are not necessarily abundantly clear elsewhere. So there's that scene, isn't there, where he offers him the job as his assistant? Yeah. And he's kind of offering him a way out, really. That that could have been a nice jumping off point for Neff and not get any further embroiled in the whole thing. But he's offering him kind of domesticity, really. He's kind of like the stability and safety of an office job. He persuasively makes the case, I think, that, okay, it's an assistant role, but it's not menial. It would be worthwhile. So I was really interested when I put out the call for some like uh, listener feedback and stuff. And uh, one of the interesting kind of themes that come up, comes up is how likable these characters are. And some of the people who replied didn't see it in the same way that I did. But I think that yeah, I... uh, the, char- the character Keys is crucial then in humanizing Neff a bit by kind of association. I found it interesting that that I thought the movie definitely wanted, be- because of the voiceover, I think we're definitely meant to see Keys as as this great man. But what we see on the screen is, is and, and I don't know how it was meant to come across to audiences at the time. But the first, the first we see of Keys is him um, bamboozling this truck um, driver. This uh, yeah, yeah. This, who burnt this down his truck. Poor poor truck driver who poor truck so, driver who committed arson. Oh yeah, yeah. But it out 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 of desperation. This and this this. Whose side are you on here, Andrew? The insurance a, industry <laughs> or the small businessman? No, but it, it, I like he he definitely. Um, he definitely was uh, uh, guilty of of the crime of uh, arson and of fraud. Um, it's just are 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 we we're 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 meant to kind of associate with with keys who's 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 beating uh, this person who tried to cheat the system, but it, it's um it's this um poor um ig- ignorant um uh, truck driver whose whose life has been yeah. uh, uh kind of like ruined and who has this simple kind of idea is just like i i need my i need my money i i i burnt my truck so i get the money now yeah no you're right i think it's definitely important i felt i felt like it was a good thing that the film established that keys is A, he's hyper-competent, and B, he's kind of ruthless, you know. So I think then then when he's kind of uh, fishing around into the double indemnity investigation, yeah, we know that they're up against a formidable adversary, you know. But I think, like we touched on the casting, and um, again, it's, you know, Edward G. Robinson, somebody made his name as a tough guy figure in, like, gangster films, something like Little Caesar people would have known him from, you know. And I, I think he's great because he's, he's kind of crotchety, you know, he's he's uh, formidable. He's also slightly pitiable in some respects, isn't he? Like when he talks about how he's unmarried and he's got this compulsion to like investigate women and, and all this kind of stuff. But he's also very humorous and he provides a lot of the film's kind of funnier moments too, I think. And the the, the whole thing about him um, once uh, being about to marry, that's really horrible. Because it's kind of like, yeah, I was once about to marry. Then I discovered her brother had manic depression mm. and that she had been married before and all of the, the like. But that, that's probably, I, I, obviously, I, um, I, myself and Darren are, are around the same age and neither of us were, were, um, were like old enough to, to appreciate this movie when it came out. Yeah. Um, so um, we don't know um, whether 
the audience at the time would have responded to the oh god man you dodged a bullet there <laughs> it sounds like that 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 brother had serious psychiatric problems and um and 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 that that whore of a lady was married before um uh, and and then and then the reaction is from a family of trash a tramp a tramp from family yeah. Of trash, yeah. So and and and, and I, 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 like how are we meant to feel about well, uh, I, these characters? Are we meant to like Keys? Well, I think we're. I think and, we are meant to find and, Keys and pitiable because he's the man who literally can't sleep because he's got like he describes as a block of cement in his gut. Mm, the little man. Uh, yeah. The little man. He's 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 constantly dishevelled. Like he's wearing a two piece of a three piece suit, but he's he's never wearing the full three piece suit, and it always looks like he's slept in it. Um, and he's very obsessed about what he's doing. He has no life outside of work. We can't really criticize Keys for for, <laughs> yeah. for his dress. Living in the twenty first century, where, where nobody wears waistcoats yeah. anymore. But the interesting thing about Keys, or one of the interesting things about Keys, is when you read a lot of the commentary on the film, and particularly from people who've watched the films and who've interviewed Wilder, is that they see Keys very much as an authorial insert for Wilder. Mm. In that he's sort of he's short, he's a little stocky, he's got the same build, he's got the same mannerisms, he's very fond of cutting remarks he's the character who like comes in and reminds the audience that like as much fun as we're having with Neff as much like you know as great as it is to break bad it's like yeah this is not a good thing and these people should probably face consequences for it he also has some of the funnier lines oh yeah no yeah. no like Wilder was a famous like Wilder was a wonderfully he was an impish figure based on what you hear from like the famous story of like this movie was nominated for best picture uh, and it didn't win Best Picture. Um, it, that went to, uh, if I remember correctly, just give me a second. If you here. remember correctly, Darren says, as, as he's scrolling yeah. through his, his phone surreptitiously, yeah. it's like, let me search the recesses my of my bank. mind palace. But Going My Way, going my won, way. The best, yes. yeah, won the Best Picture Oscar that year, where Wilder famously stuck his foot out into the aisle <laughs> to trip up the director of Going My Way when he was on his way <laughs> to collect the Oscar. And I knew that Andrew would laugh at that image. But that's very much who, who Wilder is like Wilder gives these like and again we're going to include lots of interviews with him in the show notes like he has these really great pithy one-liners where he takes no prisoners he's talking about like when he was when Wilder was casting the film he talked about how like he had to none of the actors would do it you know I tried every leading man in town I went as low as George Raft and that's pretty low Um, (laughs) take that George Raft and he proceeds to tell this story about this utterly gutting story about how Raft completely didn't understand the script that had been given to him in like a really mocking sort of look at this moron sort of way that he tells it where like he's like I'm halfway through the script and, and where comes the lapel and, and I've said to him the lapel and he said you know what I mean when does he show that he's an FBI man the lapel um, and, and Wilder says there's no lapel and Raph goes I'm a murderer I'm a murderer and Wilder's like yes that is the script that you are reading um, and apparently Raph just didn't get it yeah it feels like um, I get this impression that Hollywood was full of these like specific kind of blank morons in, 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 in that age because it like like it was only like in the seventies where 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 you were like um uh, where I'm sure the studios some of the older studio heads were like so do we have like a kind of like a Robert Mitchum sort of guy to to put in this movie because I hear you've been talking about putting Jews and Italians in um and it's like yeah yeah we 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 are and it's like yeah but how how are the audience going to associate with them if they're not six foot four and 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 and, and, and like look look like a 
you know the the the, the kind of like a, a rectangle of um <laughs> of 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 uh, scotch and cigarettes um the 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 um it was it, it's 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 interesting actually going 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 back and watching these movies because you you see you see these characters in them these these kind of um and sometimes it works well in a movie where somebody um comes across as 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 a sort of like a a simple uh, big fool who everything has has fallen has, into uh, place for fallen in yeah in 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 life because it's 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 looking back at at kind of that age it almost seems like well if if you come from a good family and are a, a, a big tall uh, uh, white man then then everything's good for you like President Norton Mister <laughs> Mister Norton and this like it, it's. It's almost not. It's almost. It's not a good performance, but it is a great performance because it. It. it like what. What we're meant to get from him is. Is. Is that he's this kind of like um, completely incompetent, com- like bumbling yeah. buffoon. Yeah, but also uh, very um, kind of. Um, he. He. He thinks it's very important that people hear what he has to say. So the actual performance maybe works quite well, mm. but and 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 the, uh, the re, and, and and this kind of like uh, what you said about Wilder reminds me of it because I'm sure Wilder spoke to a lot of those sorts of actors, and you you see you see the forward and back in that scene uh, between Keys and Norton, where where Norton is like uh, Keys, what was his name, and uh, and. Uh, and Keyes is like Jackson. Uh, I believe it still is. <laughs> sort of pithy one liners. Well, I mean, can we go back to like this idea of like how likable these various characters are? Because, like I said, I was a bit struck with the feedback I got. Like, it seemed like a couple of the listeners felt these protagonists were more likable uh, than I did. And I was thinking about why that might be, because obviously they're murderers. And what I was thinking is this: that you know, if if the three of us were sat here discussing like Peeping Tom or Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. I don't think we'd have many emailers saying, oh, you know, such a likable guy or anything like that. But I think, I suppose here, because you've got um, established stars, you know, because there's this level of wit, I suppose it's like the different ways cinema can signify things are kind of coming together to, yeah, I guess they are, they are, they're, they're bad people, they're doing bad things, but it's not unenjoyable to spend time in their company, I suppose, and... I, I mean, if you made it today, you'd have George Clooney. I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting idea that um, I don't think anyone who emailed in was kind of rooting for these people necessarily. But, you know, maybe maybe, maybe they're not as reprehensible to watch as maybe you'd think at first glance. But I, I, I think Darren said there that if you were making it these days, you'd have George Clooney. But I think it would be George Clooney and maybe Burn After Reading. Mm. Who, who would, uh, um, because it, it, it like like you have his inner monologue and he's saying... Um, um so i so, so i like went to the office i tried to get on with things tried to have my sharpened pencils but i couldn't just forget about this dame i went to a drive-in and had a beer <laughs> i followed that by some bowling <laughs> and, um and 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 you're kind of you're, you're you're kind of struck like how could i hate this person <laughs> he's, he's, he's 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 just kind of um um you you he seems like 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 an idiot or a naive well, character in some ways. He's so blank and so boring, which is why yeah. I think why I think there is that aspect of Breaking Bad to it, um, in the sense that like this there is a guy who's going back to this because because it's a nice way to to um, um, uh, ne- ne- 
negate any sexuality that he has. But no, no, but I, th- I think there is an aspect of this. This is a guy who, like, bowls, a guy who, like, you know, who does all the regular stuff. Who And it's interesting because, like, I mean, when I see that scene of him bowling, it's a reminder of how important bowling was in American life back in the middle 20th century. I remember, is it Bowling Alone is the book that was uh, that was written basically about the collapse of, of, like, American, like, community and sociality and stuff like that. It's the point at which, like, bowling leagues became a lot less common uh, in the United States around the time that... Uh, you know, sort of you start seeing people less engaged socially and stuff like that. So it's kind of interesting that Neff is presented as a man in 1940, in 1938, when the film is set, as somebody who basically bowls alone uh, and sort of how, how isolated he is. I love, I love as well that this is during the working day. <laughs> There's a lot of, um, uh, um, it, it's it's a funny thing because you can't even look back at this movie and think, oh my God, they're drinking and driving. Because every American movie you see, they're drink driving, <laughs> and it's not it's almost not an issue. But the the fact that there was a drive in beer, maybe <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> struck us as a bit odd. Well, well, I was thinking of the film's use of LA as a setting in relation to this, you know, and I think that you get the sense that comes through. Maybe they could have made more of it. I don't know. But you get the suggestion of like urban alienation, don't you? I think in that, like you said, Neff frequents places like a bowling alley or a drive in, you know, all these places where you can be alone, but simultaneously you're kind of in and around people, too. So I don't know. I guess I kind of felt that you had this juxtaposition of, you you know, it used LA in a fascinating way because you had these like sun dappled exteriors, you know, and then you had these interior settings like inside the house, which were in their own way quite quite gloomy and i felt the kind of um the blend of settings came together to work really well here and it was very la as well because of like all all of the all of the scenes in the um in the the drugstores right where where um this can't be um a small town in 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 iowa because you're 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 not going to go to the to the drugstore and and um and and um have this kind of like private conversation with you hoping that nobody um will ar- around will notice you the, this this is um a big anonymous sort of yeah did uh, this 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 is very la yeah um what's about to say so yeah just in terms of la actually because there's a, there's a lot to talk about there um there's an argument I think Mike Davies makes uh, with regards to the use of L.A. in film noir. And he, I think he singles out Double Indemnity as well in this context. Because the thing about L.A. as opposed to other American cities is it doesn't it didn't have a really distinctive identity, particularly in the 30s or 40s. It was this mesh of sort of vaguely European styles. And it was largely populated by immigrants and particularly like the artistic classes, the directors and stuff like that. As we mentioned, like like Billy Wilder was an immigrant from Austria. He'd sort of he moved over. Uh, I think his mother died in Auschwitz, uh, which is really depressing and nobody the chronology of when he found out about that nobody really knows but the the thing is that you have this sort of combination of styles and this sort of blank slate and in particular like i think neff singles out the house in which the family Mm. is living is this sort of like spanish it's a spanish style villa um as well so it's almost like that has been sort of plopped out of spain and sort of dropped into the middle of Los Angeles because Los Angeles is this place without an identity, without any real sort of social cohesion, which is how Los Angeles tends to be portrayed in film. It's like this urban city. It's this city where people's lives overlap urban without city. ever. Re- it's okay, but it's like this this urban environment in which like lives overlap without anybody really understanding, and everybody's anonymous, and every 
encounter is as a sort of a, a quirk of fate. I mean, it's. It, I kind of want to talk a little bit about like the the use of class and particularly the focus on capitalism in the film itself. Because like one of the things about Neff is Neff is a door to door salesman uh, in a way, and it's suggested that he's always been a door to door salesman. He implies that he was selling Hoover's, I think, before he was selling insurance as well. So he has this sort of like transient quality to him. And there's a sense, like, it's been argued that Double Indemnity is in some ways a story about social striving uh, after a way. Because, like, the family that Neff interacts with is very much, it's it's a wealthy upper class family. I mean, back in the day, the father went, the husband went to Stanford and is going to his class reunion, which at the time would have been a signifier of being, like, a wealthy upper class person. Now, he doesn't have any money. It's he's, he's an oil man. He's lost his money, like, in the oil business. But he lives this life of opulent luxury. And this life of comfort. I mean, Neff says, you know, it would have cost, what, $30,000 if he finished paying for it. Mm. Um, and there's this sense of, like, striving that runs through the film. And, like, there's even the conversation with Lola, his daughter, where he refuses to allow her to see this one boy because this one boy is beneath her in terms of social class. Yeah, and it's very much implied that it's um, that that is to do with um, his surname. Yeah. Um, be, because his... Um, um, is is this um, uh, Zarchetti? Yeah, yeah, Zarchetti. I think it is. Yeah. It's yeah. Nino, is it Nino? Nino, yeah, yeah. So uh, like, um, and the, f- the funny thing about about Nino is that like repeatedly, it's kind of like people are always of the sense that he's not actually as bad as <laughs> all <laughs> evidence suggests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is one of my it's issues like... with the ending. If we're, we're going to talk about Nino, we're going to talk about the ending, where it's like it's heavily implied that he's just about ready to be complicit with murder. Um, but it's OK because a man in the bushes gave him a nickel and told him to ring his sweetheart. And as a result, everything will be perfectly fine for him, which yeah. I find vaguely disconcerting. And that's kind of like when we talk about the influence of the code, that's the sort of weird, clear cut morality ending that makes me a little bit awkward and uncomfortable. It doesn't fit with anything that came before. Yeah. Like there's a sense that Nino is angry and frustrated and like that he's got these impulses inside him. I want to see, I want to see Nino actually get stitched up for that murder <laughs> as well. Like properly kind of, you know. Um, as it looks like he's going to be. Yeah. And I, 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 I want um, there to be a, um, well, I suppose like this movie is, 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 is probably just about perfect in terms of length. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think it was just at about the point where I was, I was uh, I, um, used to watching longer movies. I was like, Darren, how do you feel about watching the end of this in the morning? And it's like, what the last, the next ten minutes? And I was like, <laughs> awesome, because I was fully expecting him to to go to, the next hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and, and get hour. this guy stitched up, and then kind of like Neff maybe like kind of packs all his bags <laughs> and gets ready to to. To leave and then there's this whole thing and coming back and um but no it 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 just kind of it it, it 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 was just as long as it needed yeah i mean to go back to the issue of class i suppose i mean we touched on stanwick's uh wig and i i think it is distracting and i think maybe they should have done something differently with that but i suppose what it does is suggest that she's kind of tawdry and kind of cheap i suppose and there's a reference to her perfume somewhere i can't quite remember what scene it's in but she mentions mentions a place name and i didn't know this until i read the bfi book on double indemnity but the place name she mentions is somewhere associated with like um gaudy casinos and brothels and stuff like that so you get a sense that you know um 
yeah, Ness rubbing up against. Oh, she's she's kind of a social climber, I guess, and she's kind of um, will commit murder to do it, I suppose. I mean, in terms of the code, what you were talking about there, Darren, I think you're right. You know, I think that this is definitely an issue with a lot of films of this time that they have these unconvincing endings. And I was just trying to think because for whatever reason, it doesn't bother me quite so much as um, perhaps it bothers you. And I wonder if it's because. It often feels to me like the filmmakers are aware this is a, an obligation they need to go through, you know. And I think if you look at some of, like, the scene you mentioned there with Nino, or the film we talked about previously in Gilda, where the ending there is very unconvincing, it just kind of feels to me, it's like, okay, guys, we've got to get this in the can. We don't, you know, this is not really why we're making this film, but we'll kind of toss it off and, you know, we've, we've got to do it. So, I don't know, I guess for some reason, reason, it just doesn't weigh quite as heavily on my mind as maybe it does on yours, you know. I mean, Andrew, did you feel the same way that, you know, this film kind of it was great all the way through and then there were some aspects towards the end which just kind of fell a bit flat yeah a little bit i i didn't um i didn't want the um i i agree with darren in in that 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 scene where where neff is in the bushes I thought just, go, just, just, go call her with yeah. this nickel. You kids live happily ever after, despite <laughs> your obvious anger issues and social social anxiety. I'm I, sure nothing bad will come of this. Yeah, I yeah. I wanted to see um, Neff uh, escape, <laughs> and for the police to kind of like um, uh, come down on <laughs> Nino, and for him to be like, "I'm innocent, uh, you bastards," and uh, um, and. And, and like um and, and 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 all of that sort of drama and um and for 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 that to be the point at which Neff kind of like um uh feels kind of like a a, a, a tinge of um kind of guilt but then again like I don't understand how how uh, once more why we um associate with uh with 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 Nino because I I was fully thinking that oh okay this is setting up for the the um this is stuck up um dad doesn't doesn't approve of Nino but he's wrong because he doesn't see uh what the goodness his, inside it, him yeah he and can't then see I, past and then I thought past. when we actually see <laughs> this character he he in 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 spite of maybe like putting up a tough exterior. He's actually um, uh, quite a nice guy, and it's obvious that he cares a lot for her. No, <laughs> there's not, a really great bit where Neff is so... driving, and in voiceover says, "I'm I'm pretty sure I got a wrong read on him." And like <laughs> the audience is sitting there going, "We got the same read, and we're not entirely convinced." Yeah, they, it's strange because Nino doesn't work in so many different ways, <laughs> Be, because he doesn't work uh, in in terms of like different endings for the movie. The one that I just articulated, where 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 Neff he where and, and where Neff goes away and Nino gets gets stitched up, it doesn't work in the sense of motivating um, any guilt in uh, in <laughs> Neff because uh, um, he's probably saved Lola from an abusive marriage. Exactly, but all that Neff has seen, like from our perspective as the audience, is that is that he, he he's probably not great anyway. So, like, <laughs> if I were going to stitch someone up, why not let it be Nino? <laughs> Um, and now, now I can now I can see how Lola's doing, because um, that seems exactly what Neff would do. Yeah, I, de- I definitely feel like that the above the line performers here are all superb. I feel like if there's a, a weakness to the film, perhaps it's that some of the other performers are not quite of the same caliber, you know. And I definitely think that would apply to the chap playing Nino. 
Um, I mean, we were talking about Freudian aspects of the relationship between uh, Neff and Keys, weren't we? But you could also maybe train that lens on the relationship between Neff and Lola, couldn't you? Because oh yeah, I suppose one of the things that is good about his character is when we first see him interact with her, he's got this kind of paternal um, approach to her, which is fairly nice. But then if you think about the way the film unfolds, he kind of uh, sleeps with her mother or a stepmother. He replaces her father in a, in a sense. He kills her father. He replaces him in the sense that he impersonates him on the train. But also in terms of becoming like a mentor figure to her as well. He takes her out to dinner. He takes care yeah. of her when she's sort of lost and when she needs help. It's implied that he's, you know, it's the only, he's the only person she can relax around and... You know, I don't think they could have gone much further with this and got it on screen, but, you know, you could argue that he's kind of falling a bit for her. I think what the character of Lola does do, though, is, like, if Stanwyck's this kind of um, unhinged, you know, um, bad-to-the-bone depiction of womanhood, at least Lola then is quite sympathetic. I think it kind of mitigates that, you know? Yeah, but it's 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 two, it's two kind of depictions of women, and one of them are as a, a villain, and the other is as a victim. Madonna and the mm. whore, isn't it? Yeah, to, but I mean, um, I mean, yes and no, but 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 certainly, yeah, that 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 like Lola Lola is as good as it gets for um, a type of 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 woman at the time. It's just like you know. Um, if you want to be a good woman, um, you 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 can be the one who suffers, um, uh, mm. rather than the one who inflicts suffering. <laughs> um, and and there there's definitely there's definitely for me for me there's um, that's not um, an innocent um, uh, relationship. I don't I don't think I don't think they've. Um, I, well, I mean, because of when the movie is made, you don't really know in either case. But I don't think anything has kind of happened between them. But I think there's something... Um, I think there's a possibility that Neff is building towards it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- yeah. I think they're spending an awful lot of time together. Yeah. and, and I, I think I, Neff has nefarious think, intents, if you will. I don't nefarious. know if Neff realizes yeah. <laughs> um, that, 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 oh, I think he does. that he has those um, in, intentions. Um, or not, but I I think he definitely well even to the point that he takes a he takes to that spot overlooking the Hollywood Bowl or whatever, and it seems like kind of a lovers tryst kind of setting, doesn't it? Did you guys think oh, that? Yeah. Absolutely, it does. Yeah. yeah, he takes her to a Mexican restaurant where they won't be seen together because he knows it's sort of sordid and tacky. Also, because he wants the alibi, he doesn't want to be seen with her for obvious reasons. But there's a real sort of sense Have you had the alibi. Um, but there is great. <laughs> But there's sense that like Neff, and again, this gets back to the whole Breaking Bad thing where Neff is like breaking all of the social taboos. Uh, like this is like his last weekend. And it's kind of like, he, you know. He doesn't normally eat Mexican food. But we're going <laughs> all out now. stomach. Yeah. Uh, but I figure if we're going to do it, we're going to do this. But it's like, yeah, commit insurance fraud, commit murder, commit adultery. Mexican food and, and psycho bread. And there's this sort of like weird sense of like seducing this young teenager is sort of like one of those things on the like net bucket list of like social taboos to break. What it, about you, Darren? <laughs> not quite. <laughs> but yeah, just to go back to like this discussion of class, because class is a big part of this, is that like there's a sense that runs through this. And again, I think this is because Wilder is an outsider. And I think Chandler as well was an Englishman as well. So maybe that filters through some of his writing as well. But there's this intense focus on capitalism. Uh, within the film 
There's this intense focus on the idea of money and capital and measuring, in particular, like double indemnity is literally measuring the worth of a life in terms of money. But there's this excellent line, like all of the investigation, the police are not a How force. How else would you measure it? They, but the, the, the like law enforcement and government are not a force in double indemnity at all. Mm. There's like, I don't think you even see like a proper police officer on screen inquiring about the death or, you know, sort of investigating the death. There's a wonderful conversation where like Neff and Keyes are talking about the death of the husband. Um, and, and Neff is asking, what did the police figure? And Keyes says that he got tangled up in his crutches and fell off the train. They're satisfied. It's not their dough. And there's a sense that the only reason that Neff gets caught is not not because he murdered somebody. He would have got away with just murdering somebody. If there had been no insurance policy, if there had been no money involved, if it had just been some guy who fell off a train, you know, who he'd murdered, it would be absolutely fine. Oh, yeah. But it's because of the money that this becomes a thing that's investigated and looked at and deemed worthy of interrogation. Because the police are dealing with figures as well. They don't want a whole um, uh, spate of unsolved crimes where they're they're like, oh, it does look like this was an accident, but let's investigate this further. It's like, looks like an accident, probably was an accident. Let's clear this one off. It's done. Um, then 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 they don't have to kind of investigate a murder. It's 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 the same sort of um, uh, kind of focus on on figures that you have i guess in the insurance company yeah but i mean there's something in there in terms of like keys because keys is, is a wonderful investigator it's almost like he reminds me of colombo mm. um in terms of like his manners where he seems sort of absent-minded and there's always this sort of like this one more thing and it's like this thing that like, the little man that lives in his gut but like when he's talking about the case he's not talking about like the death of a person and the loss of a life and the particular moral weight attached to it he's instead talking about now not First thing that struck me was that suicide angle. When I dumped it into the wastepaper basket just three seconds later. You know, you uh, ought to take a look at these statistics on suicide sometime. You might learn a little something about the insurance business. Mr. Keyes, I was raised in the insurance business. Yeah, in the front office. Come now, you've never read an actuarial table in your life, have you? Why, we've got ten volumes on suicide alone. Suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. Suicide, how committed? By poisons, by firearms, by drowning, by leaps. Suicide by poison, subdivided by types of poison, such as corrosive, irritant, systemic, gaseous, narcotic, alkaloid, protein, and so forth. Suicide by leaps, subdivided by leaps from high places, under the wheels of trains, under the wheels of trucks, under the feet of horses, from steamboats. But Mr. Norton, of all the cases on record, there's not one single case of suicide by leap from the rear end of a moving train. And do you know how fast that train was going at the point where the body was found? Fifteen miles an hour. Now, how can anybody jump off a slow-moving train like that with any kind of expectation that he would kill himself? No, no soap, Mr. Norton. We're sunk and we'll have to pay through the nose, and you know it. And there's a sense that, like, Keyes isn't invested in the humanity of what's happening. He's not particularly concerned that this innocent man has died. He's simply concerned with the fact that it doesn't fit within this little actuarial table of numbers that he's adding up at the end of the season. There's no humanity in there. This ties back into what Andrew was talking about his introduction with the truck driver, where like the truck driver's story is very sad and very affecting and all that. But in the end, it's the bottom line you have to come down. Sorry, the the thing you're saying there about like, oh, he's obsessed with the figures and there's no humanity in it he um that would be fine if he were missing the point but he's he he's 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 identified exactly what's happened you you using you you using his methods like like to he he has um understood humans better 
then 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 somebody would if they were like oh my god your your um your 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 poor husband hadn't had an accident um i i'm um I'm 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 so sorry. Of course, we're going to pay out. But he the, but he, the, under, the, he understood what happened because he he stripped the humanity out, which is a very cynical outlook on this. Like I think that there's a very there's a cynicism about like the American capitalist system in Double Indemnity, where the only reason a murder gets exposed is because somebody's going to have to pay for it. Yeah, and that seems like a very wilder idea to me. I mean, I know you mentioned the notion that Keys is a wilder surrogate, but. There's a real bleakness, I think, that runs through Wilder's films. I mean, if you look at something like... um, I don't know if you guys will have seen it. It's a film called Ace in the Hole with Kirk Douglas, which he made a few years later. I haven't actually seen it. I've heard great things. Yeah, it it didn't really go down well at the time. And I think it's just because it's so kind of um, cynical in its view of humanity and human behaviour. I think that's very much playing into the characterization of keys that you talked about there. I mean, you mentioned his absent-mindedness and I just wanted to quickly mention the kind of bit of business with the cigarette that you talked about where he can never find a, a light for his smokes. Yeah. A match. And I think that, yes. first of all, I like it because it kind of, um, we're talking about the relationship between the two of them. So there's a level of like codependency, but also if you notice the way McMurray lights his match where he kind of flicks his thumb against it, you know, I just thought it was a really great bit of like actively business in the sense that, Again, it reinforces the idea that he's this kind of guy who thinks he's this kind of tough customer. So he's got all these little mannerisms that aren't really all that convincing in in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know. It's funny you should mention that because that's actually that's a recurring sort of 250 podcast trope, the inappropriate smoking. Mm. And like there's sequences where characters are wandering through shopping centers smoking away. By the way, in terms of like capitalism, you want to talk about capitalism is the fact that they plan the murder at a shopping center at this gigantic sort of consumer market. There's also the bit where the witness who's brought in uh, to testify and to identify that it wasn't actually the husband on the train. He says, you know, anytime you need me, I'm at your call. Expenses paid, of course. Uh, and there's all this big discussion about whether or not the osteopath can be charged for expenses as well. Yeah, but, and it's uh, like, I'm, I'm not going to get the train now. I prefer to get it in the morning. Yeah. So it's like, presumably then they're going to have to pay for a hotel. To stay overnight. Um, but in terms of smoking, Willie. You, you mentioned um, you mentioned uh, safety matches, I think, Andrew. Andrew was very interested. Yeah, no, I, 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 I hadn't done any particular research, surprising no one. But um, yeah, it's, it's these days we, have uh, safety matches but um, it used to just be these things that you could light on your stubble that you could light with the end of your thumb that would um, at one point uh, Keys um, says like I never I never carry matches because they always explode in my pocket that was a thing that actually happened it, I, I remember I remember looking reading like an article about about about, about matches back in the day um, and 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 about how some of them were like those kind of like little um uh mascara things where mm. where 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 you kind of like roll it and, and and take it out and then it just lights but of course like your trousers would just catch fire i mean yeah i didn't know that these were possibly safety matches he was using then so maybe i'm much less impressed now about his gesture with it than i was before actually and uh well i suppose the, i i don't know if the safety match was even invented so. okay okay i mean i always think about um a quote i think it was roger ebert who said this where it's like the only place he approves of smoking is in the movies you know just the sense that especially in old films that you know they convey this sense of sophistication and glamour that you know it's very much divorced from the reality of like smoking and so on but um 
it definitely shows up well on film, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely it does. But what wasn't it a thing as well where it's difficult it's difficult to kind of like position um how 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 we feel about these kind of things because um I think it was, it was, a lot of it was um cigarette companies did and perhaps still do um try to encourage studios to include uh, smoking in them. So it it, it, it it's um there's there, there's kind of a question of like do we um do we like the way smoking looks in movies because we've seen so much kind of like smoking in movies mm. and there's a, almost like a nostalgia to it or does it just look cool? Um I'd say did there I I knew somebody who who was kind of like anti-smoking who was like um um well it's not very clever it's not very smart it's not healthy and and then they were like but it is a little bit cool i mean i i would argue that like cigarette smoking particularly in movies works very well in terms of just lighting as an aesthetic yeah like the idea of because you can show light moving through smoke particularly on a black and white screen in a way that doesn't work without the smoke being there and i mean there's also like a retroactive sort of aspect of like not knowing it or knowing it at the time but not it being not wide public knowledge that smoking is inherently dangerous so you have the idea of watching all these film noirs where people are smoking cigarettes and it becomes retroactively this sort of almost signifier of danger. Mm. It becomes like they're taking their lives into their hands in the most boring and mundane way possible. Yeah. You know, they're all dying and just dying quicker. Well, I don't know if it's the most boring and mundane way. <laughs> Good to see loads of Haribo. That's a fair point. Um, <laughs> sitting down eating sugar. It's interesting though, you bring up like, you know, light and um, I thought maybe we should chat a bit about like the visual style of this film because yeah, I mean, just classic noir in the sense of the use of shadow and light. You know, superbly realized. I think you know you get these shafts of sunlight that run through the interior settings and like beams of light coming into the frame at like strange angles and stuff. And there was a, there was a nice little anecdote I think I came across in one of the books I had a look at where they used like shavings of aluminium because they'd show up on camera as kind of specks of dust. You know, and uh, and it kind of enhances the atmosphere here, I think. But one of the books I read made an interesting point, which kind of made me reassess the way I was thinking about the style. Uh, Richard Schickel, who wrote a book for the BFI about the film, he said that the style of the film, it kind of serves to like reinforce the qualities of the story. But he sort of sees it as retaining a bit more of a realistic substance in a sense, in that you get a strong, specific sense of place from the film, which we've kind of talked about, about L.A., but it's kind of energized and enlivened by the mood and the menace of the lighting. And I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms before, because normally when I think about film noir, I reach for terms like expressionistic and so on. But his point is that it's maybe it is to an extent, but maybe not as much as as we think it is, you know. But I definitely feel like the style gives this story a bit more heft. I mean, this this could have been a very tasteless story, but you know, the skill of the filmmaking makes it a bit more tasteful, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's a really interesting quote from Wilder when he's talking about the film, where he describes it as a documentary. And it's kind of funny that, like, we, we talk, like, you you said there, you use expressionists to describe, like, film noir, and it is highly stylized, Dutch angles, contrast between light and dark, silhouettes, the, the composition, the deep focus, all that sort of stuff, which would have been highly unusual for films at the time, and, like, even now looks kind of strange when we watch it and gives it, we immediately recognize, you know, the argument that film noir isn't so much a genre as a style of filmmaking. But one of the things that I, I really like about this is that it manages, Double Downey manages to both codify and include a lot of the stylistic 
realistic elements that we associate with noir. Like there are lots of really great scenes where light is filtered through the Venetian blinds to create this sort of like bars across the screen that suggest like captivity, that suggests people being boxed in and trapped. But it's never as sort of heightened or stylized as you would consider other film noirs to be. And I kind of, I like that about it because it, you're right, it does give it a more naturalistic quality. And again, I, I, I hate to come back to the, the Breaking Bad thing again, but it underscores but how normal, I am going to, uh, but it underscores how routine and mundane Neff is. Like Neff is a, like the thing that's just really horny, Darren. Okay, fine. But my inter, how I, I see Neff, how I process Neff, is he's this really boring guy who gets embroiled in this scheme that he thinks is, is interesting and exciting. And by the end of it becomes almost more work than it's worth doing. But like the sense of Wilder's sort of like matter of fact, relatively matter of fact, like, I mean, there's a lot of really great shots and composition. I really love that shot of the anklet coming down the stairs as a way of like symbolizing the moral descent of the character in question. And I really love there's, it's a repeated shot as well. And the second time you see it, you're not sure. He's saying, I, I couldn't help, I couldn't stop thinking about her and then you see the foot moving down the steps again and you're not sure whether it's a flashback or it's a separate yeah. scene which I, I really really like and then it becomes clear it's it's the next meeting that they had so there is like obviously stylized elements in there I think Andrew Saris who critiqued Wilder for not being a stylist later came back and said actually if you look at Wilder's visual style there there are aspects there they're just not as pronounced or in your face mm. as they would be with other directors but I think the matter of factness of Double Indemnity is a large part of what I like about it in that it feels like Neff feels like an insurance salesman. He feels like a pretty boring guy. He feels like a guy you could be drinking with or you could be working with for years and you would never think that there's anything particularly amiss about him. But on the other hand, you also then through the course of this film discover that there's quite a bit wrong with him once you dig beneath the surface. And I like that the film's sort of surface level of normality reinforces that for me, I think. Yeah, and I I wonder if that's why... um... It, I mean, this was a well-reviewed film. Don't get me wrong, and it did well, and it, you know, uh, got all these Oscar nominations and so on. But if you look back at some of the contemporaneous reviews, you get the sense that people didn't really know how to describe it, you know. And maybe, the, maybe there was some a slight element that a bit of praise that would otherwise have been forthcoming was just slightly withheld. And I wonder if that's because people would have seen somebody like Neff, I guess, as a character in a lineage of um you know there are all sorts of stories at the time about bourgeois adultery you know so you look back at some of those old reviews and people are comparing the film not to like the maltese falcon or the big sleep or whatever but they're they're reaching to books like madame bovary for example and you know there's other reviews where people are describing this as a french french realist or the the, the dollhouse maybe yeah 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 there's other reviews where people are using terms like french realism in conjunction with the film but you know I'm not even really sure what French realism means, you know. So it's uh, really easy to forget that, like, we see it as part of this movement. That, and we, we've already spoke about this a little bit, I suppose. But, you know, easy to forget the film noir wasn't a concept that was used, wasn't a term that had been coined, I don't think. You know, it wasn't talked about freely in America for probably a couple of decades after, you know, in terms of regular usage. And it's from a fairly disreputable source novel as well, you know. So even in terms of its literary kind of heritage we we seem to respect people like chandler even kane maybe he's not quite on that level 
um, regarded on that level generally. But we, we give them a bit more credit these days than they would we would have done at the time, I suppose. Well, that's sort of really about hindsight. It allows you to sort of remedy these mistakes. And, you know, it's always good when that happens within a, a director's lifetime, as opposed to something that you have to go back and discover sort of after the fact. And I, I kind of, I, I admire that aspect about it. It is worth noting that I think this would be, and your knowledge of film noir and, and the history of the golden age of Hollywood is much, much better than mine, Carl. So feel free to correct me. But this would be quite an early entry in the genre, I think. Yeah, definitely early in the cycle. I mean, there's a nice saying I've came across, and I, I can't quite remember who it is, otherwise I'd give him uh, a bit of credit, but it's that the, the classic noir cycle ran from the Maltese Falcon in 41 to Touch of Evil in 1958. So the idea being that everything that came later than that is kind of engaging with or reacting to, in some way, the original uh, uh, movement. And I think you could probably kick that idea around a bit at the edges, and quibble with it but it, it works quite nicely as um, as a way in i suppose and i mean this film i mean it reportedly had quite an effect in terms of noir's popularity i mean you probably can't you probably have to be a bit cautious in how much um you attribute the subsequent rise in film noir to double indemnity but there's an encyclopedia of film noir which i've seen where you know there are seven noirs in america in 44 um 16 in 45 so the year after double indemnity is released and then 24 and 46 released so there's quite a, quite an obvious correlation there between Double Indemnity coming out, being well-received, doing well at the box office, uh, being nominated for Academy Awards, and then a lot of similar films, or, you know, a lot of other noirs being made uh, not long afterwards. So, yeah, it's definitely um, early in the cycle, but a pivotal film noir. By 1947, they were making as many film noir movies as Raymond Chandler could write so he, he could write about 52. say 52 a week um, 50 sorry 52 a year um, <laughs> one one a week 700 dollars a pop um they, they yeah actually just to go back to uh Chandler actually because you mentioned Kane and Chandler and the dynamic that exists between them one of the things I find interesting one of the interesting arguments I've read about double indemnity is that it works so well because it combines the simplicity of Kane's plotting because Kane you know, was not an overly complicated uh, writer and director. He was not sort of somebody who was like, you know, especially sort of nuanced and had like curves and sort of like twists and turns in the in the stories that he wrote. But so combine that simplicity with Chandler's knack for dialogue. Chandler was... Mm-hmm is generally perceived for better or for worse or accurately or inaccurately as a writer who has this wonderful knack for like hard-boiled dialogue and, and there is a number of really brilliant exchanges in this we talked earlier about the suppose i'm a cop suppose i pull you over um sort of back and forth this witty uh, repartee yeah. that's like detective one is like um um that's a dirty mouth you have <laughs> it's like um suppose i put a leash on it and it's like su- <laughs> suppose i'm a robot dog from the future and can bite through the leash yeah. It's like, what, what are, are you? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but uh, the thing is that, like, the argument is that double indemnity and the story is that, like, Chandler's iconic novel, The Big Sleep, when they're adapting that for film, William Faulkner was working on the screenplay yeah. and they actually had to ring up Chandler at one point and ask, uh, so we're working through, we're, we're breaking down the story. It's a, it's a great book. We're really excited to be adapting it. But uh, who killed the chauffeur? And Chandler responded, I have no idea. Um, in his own novel um, so you get like Double Indemnity has the simplicity of a relatively straightforward arc a very story that's very easy to follow but on top of that then you can have all the Chandler-esque sort of embellishments the little details the dialogue that pops the characters who sparkle and I think that's a wonderful sort of combination I absolutely agree because I think the film's kind of embellished by all sorts of memorable moments that are pretty extraneous really in narrative terms but they're just it's just stuff that I adore so I think of 
you know, Neff not being able to hear his footsteps as he walks down the street, you know, and he talks about it's the walk of a dead man, you know, and that 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 must have come from Chandler, I, I sense, and the description of murder smelling like honeysuckle, and it's everything that you were just saying, really. It's that I think Chandler had a great gift, a uh, great turn of phrase, uh, really good at using metaphors and similes in his writing. I've, I've read all of the Marlowe books he wrote, except one, I believe, and that shines through uh, in all of them. And, I mean, Wilder was no slouch in this area, too, so I think the combination of them, um, you know, obviously we, we talked about their personal kind of disagreements and so on, but um, I think it's it's a situation where, despite that, they kind of got the best out of each other, you know? Just wanted to run through these listener comments, if I can. And uh, Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, we've touched on a lot of the uh, pertinent issues anyway, but let's see. So, Chris said, and this is back... You know, this is at the heart of what we were talking about, really. I love that the femme fatale isn't really why he commits the crime. Neff wants to show he's smarter than everyone else. She provides the opportunity and he takes it, I believe, knowing at heart what she is, what he is, that it will all go bad. He just can't resist trying. I mean, I don't know, guys. I I, I do like about taking it, but I feel like it's much more motivated by kind of a primal lust. But obviously we disagree, I guess. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with you, Carl. I I I, yeah. I I think like we we do um if if we have that urge no amount of of red flags <laughs> is going is going to talk us out of it I guess I, I kind of I like the um I like the, there's actually a really nice moment in this and it sort of reminds me of I think American Animals recently where Neff is talking about how he's waiting for a sign from above to tell him not to do this thing and it just never materializes and it's like he's just willfully blind to the red flags because obviously Keith shows up and offers him a job which is very much an out but like he's actually so fixated on doing this thing that he doesn't see that as an opportunity or a red flag or like a get out of jail free or get out of like getting shot in the shoulder and bleeding to death free card um like, like don't get me wrong I, I i i do um generally walk away from uh a, a femme fatale but um it, it's it, 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 it's 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 not because um, they're kind of like not appealing. Um, so, yeah. They, they, I, I'm now yeah. reminded of the Wayne's World 2 plot involving Garth with Kim Basinger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm trying I'm trying to think of... of, of sorry. Um, but yeah, I would agree with Chris. I'm on Team Chris on this one. Of course. Surprising cool. no one. Well, Gabriella came at this from an interesting perspective too so she says this is pretty much my favorite film noir followed closely by murder my sweet and the big sleep barbara stanwyck is incredible every scene she's in shows what a consummate actress she was and it's also interesting that neither she nor fred mcmurray are truly bad people they're just people who've done a bad thing for reasons that take the audience a long while to truly understand and i mean mcmurray maybe but stanwyck's character seems pretty bad to me to be, to be honest i mean i know she has this very unconvincing last minute thing where she can't fire the second shot or whatever but you know. <laughs> i can't properly murder you i can only half murder you and let you bleed to death um. i don't think he's gonna bleed to death we we've spoken in this movie uh, sorry in this podcast before about stabbing and how mm. like kind of like you can stab a person and they'd be fine um, uh, similarly you can shoot somebody in the shoulder uh, as she appears to do like He'd yeah. be grand. He probably is in shock. Um, um, and 
and and and is and is losing blood. But... Just, just on this, actually, it's worth noting. I don't think we discussed this, but the original ending of the film, because they changed the mm. ending of the the novel. The novel originally ended with the two characters on a boat contemplating <laughs> suicide, throwing themselves to the sharks, which is not an ending that would necessarily. Andrew's, sharks. you should see Andrew's face here, by the way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you could. That's not an ending that will work cinematically. Um, so they changed it, but the original ending of the script ended with um, Neff going to the gas chamber. So the ambulance coming, fixing him up, and then having the final shot of his execution. Uh, while they're that, that shot would have that. Yeah, while they're shot that, and they're actually it's photos like, of it's that. It's like the final scene in um, uh, Psycho. Oh, where, where they explain the movie uh, that's happened at this point. It like undercuts the, yeah. The tension. But uh, yeah, so they, Wilder figured that he had enough from the ending uh, with the two men smoking cigarettes. But I, Absolutely. I've always read that ending as meaning that Neff dies, as taking it as Neff, you know, doesn't get to the, the ambulance. So innocent. Okay, fine. But uh, by the way, I, I actually... Darren's never been shot or stabbed. To be clear. He's, he's never um, met a femme fatale. I've never had all of these life experiences. Andrew is my <laughs> guru in this regard. He's waiting to break bad. <laughs> yeah. By that he means, he, it, it, like one day he's not going to follow all the procedures. I'm only going to fill out the form in duplicate. <laughs> You're right, I, yeah. Actually, weirdly enough, I have more sympathy for Stanwyck's character than I do for Neff's. Um like, I, I I honestly, like, I feel a bit of sympathy for Stanwyck's character being trapped in this situation. Now, I know it's entirely of her own making in that she tried to marry in, she got into this marriage that is completely unhappy and unsatisfying with a point of view of trying to get the money out of it. But I kind of feel bad that she's trapped in this gilded cage. Whereas on the other I hand, Neff... It's all, it's all context. Yeah, that's so, like, 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 they, they, um, he's like, oh, so you tried to, you tried to marry into it to get a little bit of money. And she's like, yeah. Yeah, so that's uh, that's kind of like what 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 good options are there for me? Well, she's trapped in this relation. Yeah, well, she murdered the man's <laughs> first wife. Yeah. So I've, my my sympathy is limited. I must say. <laughs> Sorry, there there is a scene, isn't there, where she talks about how he slaps her in the face and stuff like that, but um we obviously we don't know the the truth of it that's her perspective yeah. and you don't know that i mean there's the wonderful scene where they're driving oh, oh to... i believe her there oh, okay uh whoa way to load that andrew but there's a scene where they're driving to the um they're driving to the train station and like neff is crouched in the back and this is really the first time he's seen the two of them as they think is alone and she's like oh you're you'll be going away then and he's like i should be back next week and now the the delivery of the line doesn't exactly scream concerned spouse worried mm. about his wife being left alone and understand that intimacy is important in adult relationships but the fact that like his immediate response to oh you're going away for a week isn't yeah and won't you be glad of that or oh my god i'll be so glad to get rid of you his immediate response is i'll I'll be back um suggests that maybe there is something resembling compassion in him and the only version of him that we've really seen is filtered through her perspective but again there's not enough there that I, i really feel confident reading it one way or the other yeah and like she 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 wants she wants money, and and um, and I think that's kind of it. Is it like I, I don't know money and better wigs. I don't I don't think she really wants a man. Yeah. So much, and yeah. and and there's something kind of um, uh, uh, almost uh, freeing about that. Yeah. Uh, I I I re- I I like both uh, Stanwyck's performance. And uh, uh, Phyllis as a character. Yeah. Um, she is wicked, but but she's 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 doing wicked things in in, in because they're we, they're they they've presented a dichotomy, um of 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 Phyllis um on on one hand and is it Laura? 
Lola. Lola, is it? Lola. Of the daughter. And, 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 and the other. And given, 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 given the choice, I'd rather be Phyllis. Um, so yeah, the, 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 um, I, I don't think, I don't think I can, in, in the logic of this movie, I don't think I can judge her too harshly in spite of the fact that she's done a terrible, ter- terrible, ter- things. terrible things. Yeah. I think they, they, they present two types of women and she's, she's the one who's, who's per, per, perhaps, um, and there always seems something optimistic. It's what she represents rather than what she's actually kind of doing. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's something in the way that Neff behaves towards her where he even he seems to be commodifying and objectifying mm. and, and depersonifying her where he, he, he never really refers to her as Phyllis. He only refers to her as Phyllis once or twice. It's always Mrs. Dietrich or Babe, um, which sort of, which seems like it makes it suggest that she could be anyone to him. That like, if he'd wandered into any other room with any other woman, he'd be plotting to murder her husband if she just gave him the slightest nudge. Um, and it kind of, it, I do feel bad for her. Whereas I feel like Neff was always going to do something like this. I feel like, uh, I don't know. I have a bit of sympathy for Phyllis. It's interesting that you mentioned the names because I think that's one thing that Chandler changed. I think in the original, it was Walter Huff and Phyllis Nerdlinger. And I think that the alter... <laughs> I think the alterations definitely take away like the comic edge to it, you know, and uh, that was yeah. for the best. Mrs. Nerdlinger. Yeah. And uh, this hit somewhat Linda J. Sandal said in a message to me, which was like, one thing you can mention is that the script by Chandler improved the novel in exactly the right way, even though the, um, Chandler and Kane didn't get along at all. Chandler could see exactly what needed to be done and did it. And I think we've kind of talked about that uh, throughout uh, this podcast. Uh, Sean said, so I just want to run through these um you know, a few more. Uh, Sean said, watch this Not for, uh, watch this last night, not for the first time. We shouldn't be rooting for Neff and Phyllis, but we do. We know it's not going to end well. Superb A-list cast, Raymond Chandler's script with Wilder. Fits together like a watch. That's a great point. By and then a couple of people raised something that we haven't mentioned over the course of this discussion, which I think is a great moment too. It's that, uh, that um, scene where Keys comes to the apartment and Phyllis turns up just after and she hides behind the door. So... Yeah, a couple of people like Max Mason have said, okay, I get it. Phyllis had to hide somewhere, but doors don't usually open to the outside into hallways and corridors. Still my second favourite film of all time. It's a fire safety violation. I mean, I believe in some European countries, though, doors do open outwards. But um, I think he's definitely right. That is a contrivance. It works really well. It does indeed. And I mean, like, this is part of the thing where the framing device... And again, I don't want to pick the on the film. Because I, I, lo- I, love, I love this film very much. But the framing device the door is... door framing device? Yeah, it's very weird, right? Because <laughs> it implies... Like, you know for a fact that, like... Obviously, Keyes doesn't doesn't figure out what's happened because he has the whole premise of the movie is Neff explaining to him what happened, which would be redundant if Keyes had ever actually caught them. So you have this weird sequence in the hallway where, like, is Keyes going to catch uh, Phyllis in the act and come down on them and figure out what's going on? Uh, and, and as a result, is, you know, Neff going to have to murder him or whatever? Or is this going to escalate? And the very existence of the framing device means that you know on like a fundamental level that it won't or it can't. Now it's to the credit of, of Chandler and to the credit of Wilder that the tension in that scene is fantastic yeah. and it rings you so tight. But I, I do sort of, I remember watching that and thinking, this is a very strange setup for a movie given the framing device that we've wrapped mm. around it. And you could apply that to another moment as well, which I, I, I really love. It's kind of improvised by Wilder, I understand. It's after they've... The, They've put the body on the tracks and they try and leave in the car, but the car won't start. And that is some, that's something that apparently had happened to Wilder kind of on his lunch break or something like that. So he, he called all the actors back. He said, you know, and the thing is, of course, they're in a model car. There's no 
ignition in the car really so it's all pantomime you know there's no key but he's kind of telling them i love that i love that scene. yeah it's brilliant and he wilder apparently mcmurray's like billy this is taking too long but no he's like no no do it slower do it slower and it's just elongated for exactly the right amount of time i think and that's a great moment too in my opinion exactly the the the, the fact that it starts running as well um it make 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 makes it better if it like because um all Neff has to do is just lean over and turn it once and it starts working which is a really nice sort of like cherry on the scene is <laughs> a nice sort of capper um because it takes what is a really tense scene yeah. and sort of makes it almost comical he's good at lighting things <laughs> like any type of ignition <laughs> he, he just excels in yeah like that's what he should do <laughs> instead of uh, murder sure <laughs> yeah let me just read uh, a last message from victoria kodai who said this was an absolutely brilliant film one of my favorite noirs i drew inspiration from this for a film i'm making so Ooh. i'm definitely going to keep an eye out for victoria's film and um yeah share Fantastic. the information about Let that us online know. but yeah yeah absolutely and maybe we'll be covering it yeah so yeah i was really pleased that people got in touch and it's you know uh, obviously a film that's held in high esteem by those who've seen it it seems it is indeed um like and, and again like including the three of us on this particular podcast as well um, it's it's an absolutely stunning film noir. It's it's up there with Sunset Boulevard. In fact, like the suggestion is that you should watch. And I think you mentioned this at the start. You should watch Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity as a double bill almost because uh, they fit together so perfectly. Yeah, you could do you could um you could do that. You could do a triple bill with Ace in the Hole, or you could do like a Billy Wilder Raymond Chandler thing where you go back and watch The Lost Weekend immediately after and and you know perceive the things you were talking about with Wilder's relationship with Chandler. And um, like you said, one of those things where the re- kind of retroactive acclaim for the lost weekend it seems very much like it was a case of double indemnity deserved all the awards last year we don't want to miss you know miss the uh the bandwagon with this wilder guy yeah let's kind of shower him with acclaim now so but yeah no but wilder's one who um people should dive into his filmography you know it's like Pacino as well with scent of a woman like that, that that's when, when it's Den- the lifetime Oscar. when denzel washington is asked about kind of the the um the Oscars being so white and like, how did he not get an Oscar for Malcolm X? It was, it, and, he, and he says, well, like that was the eighth or nine time Pacino had, <laughs> had, had been up for that. And he finally won it. And probably, mm. it was probably on account of like it, it's some of his older performances as well. And the injustice of him not getting it. So he was like, kind of like, um, maybe, maybe the Oscars aren't Italian enough either. Um, um, I quite like my, my favorite statistic is I think that Charlie Chaplin's only competitive Oscar is for the score to Limelight in 1973, 20 years after the film was released. Um, would have hated to have been one of those guys nominated for soundtrack, I think, that year. In terms of uh, specifically with Double Indemnity onto The Lost Weekend, it reminds me a little bit more of how like maybe something like Whiplash... Uh, didn't quite get the glowing reviews that La La Land did, you know, and may- maybe there's a sense that um, there's an element of atoning for that when La La Land came out that, hey, we weren't out quite as attuned to, you know, what Whiplash represented. That seems like a kind of a decent-ish kind of analogue to me. But yeah, no, you're definitely right. All right. So I think that sort of about wraps up. But um, so the Movie Palace, tell us a bit about what's coming up on the Movie Palace, Carl. Okay, well, there's uh, during November... Uh, hashtag Noirvember is something that goes around, it seems like, on you know on the uh, classic film Twitter, as it were. So we've done Double Indemnity. We did, hopefully, uh, a film noir primer a couple of weeks ago. Haven't recorded it as we're sitting here talking, but hopefully we'll have got to <laughs> listeners before this episode. It's, uh, it's reassuring that other podcasts work like that, too. Um... <laughs> we'll also be having a look at the Maltese Falcon and one other film noir in November before December, hopefully, will be a little bit cheerier. 
<laughs> just sort of in the seas. I like that. You got to you got to go down to get up. It's the roller coaster effect in reverse, basically. Um, yeah. So we're we're the two fifty as well. So we we will be covering um, sort of we'll be doing our usual stuff in November. I'm not quite sure what our next films will be. And we sort of come out of a spate of like, we've just done Halloween. We've just done our anniversary show. So we're just going to get back to business as usual. So stuff like Beauty and the Beast, Once Upon a Time in America, uh, City of God, Fight Club. That's all, all ahead of us. Uh, on yeah. Two Fifty coming up. We're also trying not to date this. So if you're listening to this in October, then don't be too surprised, but you're not because we, we, then, um, Let's let let let's see if our listeners can guess like when, when this we recorded. was recorded. Yeah, <laughs> just retroactively <laughs> using all the contextual clues there. Yeah. Um. But thank you very much, Carl. Um. If we're if listeners are looking for the Movie Palace online, where can they find you? Uh, I'm most active on Twitter at Movie Palace Pod. Uh, less active on Facebook, where I have put a page up on there. So Facebook.com/slash Movie Palace Pod. And the podcast itself can be found, you know, on iTunes, Spotify, various places where good and not so good podcasts are found. I think you're very much the 250s movie twin there because we are also relatively active on Twitter, less active on Facebook. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've said that I'll set one up, but do you know what? I don't think we really need it. <laughs> um, I, and also that it's like a thing I've promised to do. So I just don't think I'll do it. <laughs> That's a very good attitude. Yeah. I yeah. appreciate it wholeheartedly. But you can find us online at at the two fifty. You can follow Andrew at a q u i n n i u q a. You can follow me at Darren underscore Mooney and the two fifty at the two fifty. You can find us on Stitcher, on iTunes, wherever good podcasts are sold. Take it easy, guys. We'll be back next week. Bye. 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 Bye.